When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. everyone, welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucan. I'm, I'm Ethan. Uh, and if you're new, welcome to the show. Make sure that you're subscribed because we have a new episode coming out every Monday. And if you've been around for a while and you have a band that you just really want us to talk about, the way that you can let us know is through Instagram and Facebook. Just hit us up at the Good Music Podcast and we'll uh, be sure to uh, make your dreams reality and do your favorite band. But finally, if you are a lover of good music like we are and you want to support the show, go down to the episode description, click on the Patreon link, become a patron. Uh, it helps the show out, helps us out, and you get special access to episodes early and uh, our special Bad Music podcast where we talk about the six worst songs of the artists that we're talking about that week, which brings us to Lucas, who is the artist that we're talking about this week. So the first... Uh, episode of every month we do what's called a volume two where we do an episode on a artist that we have already uh, covered and we're kind of doing a deeper dive into them and this is going to be a sequel to one of the biggest episodes we have ever done today i think it's our third biggest one ever with how many how many plays do you know uh it's around six thousand dang so and this was the it was the second episode we ever did it was one of the ones that i did by myself a long time ago uh the one that is out now though is one that we did a redux of with me and my first co-host justin um but we're talking about metallica the the biggest metal band in the world good old metallica Oh, yes. Everyone's first step into heaviness, usually. <laughs> it was for me. It uh, feels like they're just so legendary, so pinnacle at this point. Are they like a... Are they like... Are they still doing stuff? Yeah. Uh, they made a couple appearances recently on the the Late Show, and... I mean, whenever COVID happened, they were still doing their hardwired tour, which has been going on for like four years yeah. now. They they had the big uh, S&M2 concert, which is fitting because of what we're going to be talking about tonight. I mean, Metallica is a band that is never not doing something. That's kind of like the whole 
thing about Metallica is that you they're always doing something, but you kind of never know what. They're the most unpredictable band out there for sure. Maybe not the most. So then, volume two with volume two is like sometimes we talk about live. Sometimes we talk about the different phase. Like so, I guess what do you want to cover in volume two that we didn't cover the first time? So I wanted to talk. This this is we're going to be talking about them as a live group, but it's this is not going to be like how we have in other times where we're like capturing like what a normal live show for a band is. This is a very special show that we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. This is to be their 1999 S&M concert, which uh, the pun there is that S&M stands for Symphony and Metallica. Um, so this was a this was a one of a series of shows that they did. I was actually surprised to find when I researched this that this was not a one-off performance. Oh, really? They did like five of them. Did it? Uh, they did a couple. In, um, not no, like they only did it in like three different places. Like they they did one in California. I think they did one in New York, and then they did one in somewhere in Europe. Okay. That's pretty dope. Yeah, did they do the same but thing for the sequel. Um, I actually have not done a whole lot of research on the sequel. I mainly just focused in on on the original show. Okay. I have, I still haven't seen the sequel Ooh, show. Yet. I I got to see it in theaters. And I was very jealous. Of there, that. it was definitely like it's definitely of the same style. I mean, they didn't have the same composer because he unfortunately has passed. Right, so the composer mm-hmm. that is in the original S and M, who did a really great job, you know, with a lot of these songs and really brought some of them, I think, new life. Um, uh, there was kind of that same style to some of the Saint Anger songs uh, during that mm-hmm. set, and so it really redeemed. Especially, you know, I, I talked about all within my hands. I think on the last um, after hours that their version on S and M two of all within my hands actually makes the song, you know much more than bearable i'm gonna counter that though and say that that's actually not the symphony that did that have you listened to their uh helping hands acoustic show it's uh it's on spotify and it's one that they did like two years ago and it's an all acoustic set and they do that version of all within my hands on there and that was the first time that i'd heard the revamped version of it and I remember, I remember hearing it and just going, "What? What did they? How did they resurrect this song?" So mm-hmm. whenever I, because the first single they released for the S and M two was "All Within My Hands," and so when I heard that, I was just like, uh, "Okay, they're they're doing the acoustic version of it." Uh, so that that version of the song had already been existing okay. for about a year or so. So I won't be as quick to say that the. It was the symphony that breathed life into it. Metallica had kind of already reworked and repurposed that song into what it, what we heard. But of course, because of that, it made it to where they were able to, you know, use it for that show because it worked so well. So that that kind of begs the question, right? We are going to talk about Metallica and a symphony orchestra collaborating on, you know, uh-huh. completed Metallica songs. So what what's the philosophy behind, oh, let's take this, you know, especially for songs like we're going to talk about some of their biggest songs of all time. Um, 
are being completely I don't know I don't know if completely is the right word, but are being reimagined with a some of them orchestra. are right. So I guess how did how did that idea get birthed? So um, the conductor for this performance is a guy named Michael Kamen, who is a was a very prominent composer in of himself. And specifically, he um, was really good at working with rock musicians. Like, he's the guy that did all the symphonic work on Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh, wow. And he'd done stuff with Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan and uh, I think Alice in Chains. And so it's just like that's kind of like he's he was very familiar with that. And the way that they him and Metallica got introduced is that he's the one that did the string arrangement on the studio version of Nothing Else Matters. <laughs> That's cool. And so and so they they met each other through that. And um I think there was there was some kind of uh they played at an awards show and they had they were doing Nothing Else Matters and they actually had the symphony come out and play with them for that one song and um and then they just they met with him backstage and michael king was just like man you guys should do a a whole show of this your music suits a symphony really well and that was kind of where the seed of that was and it would be, i think it was like that, that happened in like 95 mm -hmm. and so it took several years for it to happen but finally lars was just like you know what let's let's do this let's pull the trigger on this mm -hmm. and let's see if we can make this work and it certainly did Oh yeah. This this concert has gone on to become one of the most legendary live performances by any band ever. It's kind of like it's risen to that stature. Mm -hmm. Um not only just in how crazy the concept in of itself was, but also how great the final result was. That's true. That's true. And I I it makes a lot of sense that you know michael Kamen would say oh your music suits orchestra very well because their roots are in you know cliff's compositional style mm -hmm. and he was classically yeah. trained you know and so yeah they mentioned they mentioned when they were getting rid of his they're like if they're like if only cliff could yeah. see what we were doing here he would have he would have <laughs> pooped his pants yeah yeah but but even for the non-cliff songs i think that you know the the orchestra really brings a new life to some of these. And some of some of them, you know, I personally disagree. I think that the the versions without the orchestra are definitively better, right? And that's I think a personal, you know, that's that's my own personal subjectivity to, you know, I heard the album versions many times before I heard the S and M versions, but um it's it is there's there's some there's some songs that I picked on here because I believe they are the definitive versions yes. and other ones because I, it was more to showcase just like how crazy in of itself this concept was and how, uh, and how great they executed it. Even though mm -hmm. you, you still can't say that it's better than the original, mm -hmm. but it's like, you look at it just like, wow, how impressive yes. the final result is. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where, you do kind of have to look at like a live show, you know, mm -hmm. and instead of being like, Oh, I don't like how they did it. You know, it's like the concept is just so new, you know? Now this isn't the first time 
that a rock band has collaborated with an orchestra. Ooh. Although no one, this was the first time that anyone ever did it so successfully. Um, Deep Purple actually did this way back in 1969. Um, they did they did an album where they didn't necessarily have a symphony play along with reimagined um, versions of their songs, but rather their keyboardist John Lord uh, wrote a sixty minute concerto with three movements that is simultaneously played by a full orchestra and the band. Yo. and it's actually incredible the results. Like it's a it's a resounding success, and that album was fairly big for them. It's what helped put them on the map. But um, that's kind of more like diehard music fans know more about that. Where I, S and M was kind of like the first rock symphonic collaboration to like really hit mainstream. Yeah, I get the feeling that a lot of people who would listen to S and M are people who would be like, ooh. Check out this metal band, Melatica, are playing with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. I wonder if that sounds cool. Yay, rock music, you know? More (laughs) more than the heavy metal fans going like, oh, wow, Metallica, one of my personal favorite bands, is playing with a symphony, right? Mm -hmm. I I get the feeling that this is like Metallica trying to put their foot in another, in another audience's, you know, doorway. Yeah, and also it's just it's so emblematic of where they were in the '90s of just like let's do something absolutely insane and something incredibly risky that could destroy our career if it fails, and just do it. I mean, they already did country music, so can't get much worse. Thank yeah, you. let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about where Metallica was in the '90s because this was the, this was the last thing they did that decade, and the '90s was a really weird. decade. Metallica. One of the weirdest decades for any metal band ever. Right. So we come off the heels of the And Justice for All tour, which is the end of that 80s. Yes. And the, well, and really you could say that the first strange Metallica thing happened at the end of the 80s with the, with the, with the big Grammy snafu. Have you guys heard that story? Oh my God. I've never heard that story. Tell me the story. But I already know my personal disposition against Jess Rotol just because they took. Whatever. So, um, as as Metallica was getting bigger um, at the Grammys, they decided to add a new category for best metal performance, and um, that was the year that "And Justice for All" had come out, and where you know Metallica was really starting to separate themselves from being an underground act and starting to become more mainstream recognized, and so. You can almost believe that they created the category to give Metallica an award. And they gave the award to Jethro Tull, who, for an album called Crest of a Knave, which is the opposite of a metal album. It's not even that And Justice for All was better. Crest of a Knave is not even a metal album to begin with. And it's also not even... it's also not even that good. Wait, what? Well, what is it then? It's it's like folky progressive music. Jethro Tull is in the now. Same Jethro Tull is a, I would say Jethro Tull is a great group, but they're they're 
heyday was definitely in the 70s. Right. They were kind of part of that early 70s prog rock first movement. You know, they're the kind of group that did an entire album of one 42-minute long suite. And their main, their lead singer also plays the flute. Oh yeah, I remember. They're one of those. They're one of those kinds of bands. They're really weird. They're not even necessarily really weird. They're kind of. They were more normal than most of their other prog rock contemporaries, although they were still very progressive. But they were not heavy, mm-hmm. not in the least bit. Mm-hmm. Like most of their stuff is very acoustic driven, and definitely like something like Crest of a Knave, way lighter than you could maybe make the argument saying an album like Aqualung being a, a kind of heavy record. So it's it's a bizarre, it's one of the most bizarre things to ever happen in Grammy history. Because, like Alice Cooper was the one that read the the winner and you can see the confusion on his face when he reads the the thing is, and the Grammy go- to Jethro Tull, mm-hmm. and it's just—it's so strange. But in a way, it was just like that was kind of the first step in a series of just really game-changing moments for Metallica and metal in his in general. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in '91, you have the Black Album coming out, which is still to this day the biggest-selling metal album of all time. Um, it's the biggest-selling. Uh, rock album of the CD era. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of pop and country albums that have sold more, but as far as like rock and roll and heavy metal, it's the best selling. It's sold over 20 million. I think it's maybe has even sold 30 million. It's some. It's like the 19th best selling album of all time, somewhere around there. Wow. Dang I think man. it's. I, I want to say it sold like 33 million copies. It's just it's a it was a monster record. Um, it came right at the perfect moment when all of popular music changed. It came out around the same time that grunge hit, um, as well as you had, you know, it came out around the same time as Guns N' Roses' "Use Your Illusion" one and two, uh, Nirvana's "Nevermind," Pearl Jam's Ten, Soundgarden's "Bad Motor Finger." Um, uh, all of these genre-changing hard rock records. And so, you know, they were the ones that put real heavy metal on the map. And they became the first true international mainstream metal group. And, um, but when they made that record, it alienated so many of the diehard underground fans because it is a very commercial record. For those of you that don't know, that's the, that's the album that has songs like inner Sandman and unforgiven and sad, but true. Nothing else matters. Very unthrashy songs, even though they're great songs, very unthrashy. Right. And their thrashy songs off that album were not the biggest. No, and really not that thrashy. Yeah, that's true. You know, you still still had songs like Through the Never and Struggle Within and Holier Than Now, but you compare that to where you were on the previous album with Injustice for All, it's definitely a step in a very different direction. So Metallica doesn't have, we've talked about some other artists having like transition records that doesn't seem to suit their style. No, every record's a transition record. Every every record's just like, we want to do this now. Right. Yeah. And so, and so, 
you can you cannot deny that the black album is a heavy record it's just a different kind of heavy and so you still have a lot of fans that went along for the ride when the black album came out but then when you had load and reload come out in the mid 90s which um if you don't know that is uh it's not a double album but it kind of is they wrote so many songs for the load sessions that they didn't want to get rid of any of them and they didn't want to cut any of the lengths down so they just decided to release all the songs they had left over the next year well it was and it was more complicated than that they i think they intended to do a double album right oh yeah they absolutely they well no they because the an interview at if your interviewer asked him, I was just like, didn't you ever just consider making this all one record? And Lars was like, no. Well, they wanted to release them at the same time. But... Uh, no, they act- no, actually they didn't. But the rec- I don't the, think so. The record executives told them that they needed something because it had been five years since the Black Album came out, right? And they had that. Yeah, but they didn't They didn't need to release two records. And what uh, what Lars had said was that his intention was to uh release four albums in four years just to see if he could Mm. again it's it's this whole mantra of just like let's just do something completely insane and see if we can get away with well they oh they almost did so you had you had load in 96 reload 97 garage inc in 98 and snm in 99 Right, and Garage Inc. being the full covers album. Uh-huh. Right. The So he so he absolutely did it. Right, right. And I I know that, you know, we're gonna have to eventually touch on the load reload controversy, right? I yes. think that there are some really great songs on load and reload. Actually, those were the albums that made me become like a metallica super fan right oh yeah there's great songs but there's also some really crappy songs i I kind of like the weirdness of it though right i had always been a fan of like the ride the lightning uh master puppets and justice for all era right and i was watching like this metallica meme compilation this is the dumbest way right to to find out you like a band and, you know, as you're making a meme compilation of a band, you're going to use uh, music that they wrote. And there were some songs that I didn't recognize. And I'm like, I this sounds like it should be on the Black Album. It's got the right sound, right? It definitely doesn't sound like Sane Anger because it sounds okay. And so I'm like, it must be on Load and Reload. And so I listened to Load and Reload. And it wasn't like, it wasn't amazing. It didn't blow me away. But it, like, they changed their sound completely from from the era that I enjoyed the most. And yet I still found mm-hmm. it to be very uniquely Metallica and still good, right? Obviously you had stuff after 2000 that, you know, wasn't that great. But, you know, Load and Reload were still good. And I think that S&M is also part of that same vein in that, like, they completely changed their sound and yet it was very uniquely Metallica. Like, no no mm-hmm. other band would have done it the way that they would have done S&M. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a paradox because it's like, 
on one hand, they made a lot of really dumb decisions, but then also on the other hand, they wouldn't have been Metallica had they not made those decisions. Yeah. It's kind of like part of the deal. <laughs> if you're going to be Metallica, you kind of have to make some really questionable decisions with your music. Yeah. And with some of the things that you do outside of your music. Right. So it's Metallica. It's just so it's very strange. You 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 have to have the weirdness, but at the same time, there's times where you don't want the weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I have always been fascinated with the weirdness. The thing that in Load and Reload that I think drags it down is the is the phoned in boring crap. It's the song. It's the songs like Two by Four. And oh yeah, Poor Twisted Me and The Cure. It's it's those songs where it's just like it's very lazy that I'm just like the stuff like mama said and um, hero of the day low man's lyric low man's lyric uh, fixer. It's like, those are the stuff where I was just like, this is, this is the interesting stuff. And the stuff where it's, you know, they should have definitely made this, uh, these songs, even if maybe they don't completely work, at least it's a risk. It's all of the sleepy, boring crap like Carpe Diem Baby. And oh, yeah, that one is just – there's some stuff off the reload. That just... Bad Seed is where it's just like, really, guys? Mm-hmm. I It would be really interesting to hear what a condensed version of both albums would have – until if you condensed both of them into one record, took the best from both of them, how great that record would have been. You know, you if you had, piece. if you had fuel, uh, memory remains, bleeding me, outlaw torn. I'm surprised you uh, put memory remains in there. I thought you didn't like that song. Oh, I love that. Oh, song. good. Okay, I'll let you live. No, yeah, that's a great song. <laughs> um, so it's that would that I mean, obviously, yeah, you can set list things however you want, but it's just like you think in retrospective what their career trajectory would have been like had they just made one really good record instead of two uneven records. Mm-hmm. It would be very interesting. But yeah, and then uh, then yeah, you have the controversy of not just what the music sounded like, which is very much losing its metallic edge, more mm-hmm. veering towards alternative rock and grunge, and but they're also them looking very alternative and grunge, cutting their hair off, wearing makeup, wearing designer clothes. They're going for the My Chemical Romance vibe. Well, um, yeah, ten, 10 years before it happened. Right. I would say that they're very much going the um, the the alternative rock look. Right. And so, um, yeah, you've got... you've. It's... I understand. I mean... Metallica always said that they never did anything they they never did anything for the fans. They always did what they wanted to do. They never tried to please anyone. And yet you also look at what they did and you can tell that they're they got swallowed up in the beast for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that any kind of and cuz Lars will never admit it. Lars will always say that he he doesn't regret a single thing that they did that everything they did was because they wanted to do it and that 
you that everything was for an artistic merit. I don't believe him a lot. I don't believe him sometimes because he's someone that will never admit that he did anything wrong. But I think to a certain extent, he is right. I think in some instances, he's right. Mm -hmm. But I think in other instances, he is wrong. Okay. That's fair. Um, So, yeah, the, the 90s, 90s was a weird it was the rise of Metallica, yet it was also the, I don't want to say the neutering of Metallica, because again, that, that implies that they got worse, but in a way they did, but at the same time, they also grew. It's it's weird. It's the realization it's, you, of, of where the boundary really is. It's Metallica is so unlike every single other, not just metal band, but band in general. No one else has had the the trajectory or the or the weird baggage that comes along with them. Other than Star Wars. It's, yeah, <laughs> like I described in our volume one. By the way, if you haven't listened to our volume one, make sure that you go listen to that. It's uh it'll definitely get you introduced to Metallica because we're doing much more uh deeper dive here. Um yeah, it's yeah, Star Wars is the film equivalent of Metallica, I believe. <laughs> You've got the classic period that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. You've got the the prequel era, which is the '90s that everyone hated at the time. But like, as retrospect has gone on, people have begun to love it more and more, mm-hmm. and started to go, "Well, it wasn't that bad." Oh, look, there's so much good stuff here. Just ignore some of this stuff, and the rest of it is great. Exactly, exactly. And then you have the modern era, which is the the sequels, where you have some people that hate every single thing that has ever been made in it and other people that all say that it's perfect and that if you hate it then you hate metal and it's it's an attempt to return to the roots right i think yeah metallica is never going to return to the way that they were in the 80s i don't think like no matter how hard they try i don't think that they will that does no band ever can that that doesn't mean that well i mean you could make an argument that um that early 2000s Megadeth sounded a lot like mid-80s Megadeth after they had that weird 90s phase, right? Yeah, I just you, you never, never trust a band that says that they're going to, especially a metal band that says we're going to make an album that's heavier than any of our early stuff. Well, because... I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, Megadeth's supposed um, upcoming release. I'm talking about like, United Abominations, right? System has failed. That kind of stuff sounded a lot like it, like they did in, in the eighties, right? In a way, that's kind of what I guess Rob, you know, tried to get them to do in philosophy. Uh-huh. And I think that they got the philosophy right. I think that you know, those aren't my favorite albums, right? Death Magnetic and um, Hardwired to Self Destruct. I'm not gonna like put them on and listen to the whole thing and go, "Wow, what a great album!" Because it's just not for me. But I still do I can do that for Death Magnetic. I still do recognize the fact that it's the same philosophy as, especially mm-hmm. Death Magnetic and Justice are pretty close from what I. I would say that I'd say that Death Magnetic and Master are very similar. They're cut from the same cloth. Wow. So, um, well, so there you go. I think that I think that Death Magnetic is as good and as close as you can get to trying to recapture the old glory 
But of course, it's always going to not be as good. But it, it got really close. So, yeah, some of those songs are pretty good. Um, but that being said, but, right, yeah. we're in we're in '99 now. So, mm-hmm. so, so they kind of had a lot of um, they had a lot of misses with their fans during leading up to '99, mm-hmm. and it kind of felt like the band was in a bit of a downward spiral. Their, you know, Load did not sell as well as the Black Album. Reload did not sell as well as Load. Their their albums were, even though they were still selling really well, mm-hmm. they were they were dipping and uh, they weren't gaining momentum. They were losing it. Um, they were there were PR stunts that were happening that were constantly getting them in trouble at this point. Um, the critics were hammering them at this point. Call, you know, calling them sellouts and, um, you know, just Metallica was not in a good place at 99. And all of the internal fracturing was really starting to happen at this point. And so really S&M is kind of a unexpected victory at the end of a really turbulent and crazy decade. Although it would be short lived because then the early 2000s is the darkest period of the band. Oh my lord, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in my. I don't know any of this. In my I don't know opinion, any of their, their greatest uh, live bassist left. Right. Yeah, I, I think I might agree with that. Because, I mean, Rob's great. I love him. We all love him. He's the longest standing bassist that they've had, he's talented. Right. That's crazy that, that 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 that's a fact now. Right, and Cliff is like, of course, the founding member, and he's the heart and soul of the original Metallica, and he will be among the greatest bass players, the greatest instrumentalists of all time. But and he was he's definitely their best studio bassist. Right, and and but you cannot um, ignore the fact that it's just fun to watch Jason, especially in the you know Justice and early nineties days for him to and run around a, on stage and he's he's a great team player right and he like in those early days he was still like a kid right and so he well yeah he described himself as just being a kid and so you know the whole touring and everything because he had just done you know the one flotsam and jetsam album at that point um, mm-hmm. which is a great album right and that was doomsday of, for the deceiver that was kind of his brainchild and so was their subsequent album that he wrote a lot for but didn't actually um record but you know he was still very new to the whole you know big he was newstead yeah well okay (laughs) and so it's just it's it's fun to watch him you know with his excitement and his energy and it's fun to listen to him talk about the interviews about the time it's just i think that he's kind of like his own little dip of the fans into the band to experience he's the best he's the best bgv guy that they've ever oh, had yeah. for sure oh yeah and we'll see some of that in the songs they're talking about mm-hmm. um yeah so yeah m it's it is amazing when you really see everything that happened to metallica in the 90s how universally loved this is and how brilliant it was it was kind of like it was a reminder to everyone that 
as if you think that Metallica is losing their musical brilliance, that they kind of showed everyone just like we've still got it. It's kind of like it was a moment where they proved all the naysayers wrong. Yeah. And I mean, just everyone sounds great on this record. The biggest beef that I've had with the things that I've heard from SM2 is that it just doesn't sound as good. It feels like everything's not as clear in SM2. Because I originally, my original vision for this episode was I was going to do half SM1 and half SM2. Mm-hmm. Mainly because I wanted to get all within my hands in there. Mm-hmm. But then I, but then I had picked some of the songs for SNM two, and I went back and I was I was listening to them. So I was just like, this doesn't sound right. Yeah. And I went back and listened to the SNM one versions. So I was just like, oh, just the mix and the and the accompaniment is so much better here. Yeah. And so I was just like, I'm sorry, I gotta I gotta <laughs> just do a full SNM one. And and it's it's kind of. Like there will never be another original S and M. I mean, even for S and M two, I feel like it was kind of it felt very obligatory at some points. Like there were some, I think the, there's some real stinker moments. Like the Iron Foundry didn't need to happen. Oh, like, that and, that was terrible. That was <laughs> that was the because I had to whenever I made the ranked playlist because that is something that they played on. I I had to listen to it in order to include. And I listened to it, I was just like, what the heck is this? I don't even know what. Why is this on here? Yeah, yeah, and and S and M one does not have anything like that. It is just it is no nonsense all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were just some moments in S and M two when it felt like like a recital, whereas yeah. the original S and M, it's like this is it's, a big deal. Like it's very fun. atmospheric. Oh my gosh! It's like it's so... where there's in S and M too. I noticed there was a lot of talking, where they're like they're like introducing songs mm-hmm. and and like and it's, it's you can almost like again I haven't seen the footage, but you can imagine like the lights coming up and and just going okay, well now we're gonna do this song. This is very interesting. You know, we wrote this back in Nantes of the Water, and oh man. Yeah, it's just it feels like the passion's not in it. I think the most interesting thing that S and M two has going for it is just hearing some of the new songs get the symphonic touch to it. Mm-hmm. I but just I remember watching it and I bet in the theater it was pretty amazing. I, I had the feeling that it was kind of like you're there in the audience and it's kind of like you're all in a room jamming together. Right? It's like mm-hmm. we are kind of listening in on Metallica like play a few songs for us and it's totally informal like that's the feeling that I got but that doesn't translate well to audio right that that's no. great for something that you're going to go see in theaters and that's why it was amazing to watch the video but listening back you're right it's like I don't remember it being that it's awkward. very sterile sounding <laughs> awkward um there. Where just the first, the first one just it has it's so big sounding, yeah. and yeah, you just you have this feeling that it's like this is you've been transported to another dimension when you're listening to it. Yeah, it's like a parallel world where Metallica has strings now, you know, and a forward. And also, Met- Metallica themselves are different during this point. They are not the the nice winky smiley 
band that they are right now. Mm-hmm. You know, Hetfield is not Papa Hep at this point. <laughs> <laughs> he is still a very mean, very intimidating man at this point. Like he is, he's not cracking jokes on stage. If he is, it's it's kind of a nervous laugh of just going, "Oh God, what's he going to do?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's not he's not saying you guys are awesome. He's just like, you know, come on, you mother effers, I need to hear you sing this one. And it's you know he's uh, he's kind of scary, but again, that worked for nineties Metallica. That's that's what they were. They were not a relatable, you know, take your family to meet them band, which is what they became in the mid 2000s onward they you know that was an intentional choice by hetfield because that you know persona he was carrying was destroying his mental uh faculties he was he was losing his grip on on uh on his emotions and letting leading to addiction but you know when he did that he let go of a lot of that anger and became the nice hetfield that we all take for granted now it's true. And I think it's another reason why the two S&Ms are so different from each other is just Metallica in of itself is different. Yeah. And that's why anytime that you hear a band say that they're going to try and recapture something that they've done before, they're not the same as they were back then. And that will always inherently um, make the music different even if you try and do it the exact same way as you did before you're a different person by that point you don't have the same emotions the same mental state that you were or at least hopefully you don't Mm -hmm. if you do then typically you're probably not still making music at that point you're off doing something else Mm -hmm. so um yeah snm it's it's a triumphant record and I think that yes, we do get a good snapshot of Metallica live. There's there's some there's some things about some of the songs that happen regardless of whether or not it's with a symphony. But then also you have this ex- added element of just like regardless of if there's an S and M two, this was a once in a lifetime performance that perfectly captures a band that was really right at the edge of falling apart but just had one last great moment in it before plunging into hell Mm -hmm. now there are some that's not to say it is a perfect record right i would say that it you know objectively this is this is a a huge triumph like you said but Mm -hmm. there are some things that don't necessarily translate well to having a symphony orchestra behind them you know, namely those super, super thrash epics. You know, for example, one in Master of Puppets. I think that the reason why those songs are so great is because of that, you know, chugging, alternate picking, palm muted intensity of the riffs, right? And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to some great string accompaniment, right? But that's not- I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you with that on Master of Puppets though. Oh, I think you I think you have a I think you have a, a strong argument. For, especially for Master of Puppets, but one does not sound the same. Now, another thing that's very interesting is you did not include The Memory Remains on here. No, I did which not. Which is super sad, because I think that, that's, that the S&M version is the better version. 
by a long shot. I know there's there's only there's only so many I there's can do. So many. That's true. That's true. And I it's, and... It sacrifices. Like I wish I could have done Outlaw Torn. Oh. Um, I wish that I could have done. Um, uh, I wish I could have done. Oh, what was it? Um, uh, Until it sleeps. I feel like the, the S M version is really good there. Um, Devil's Dance. S and M is better than the original, I believe. Just a whole lot of those load and reload stuff, because especially uh-huh. the load stuff, because that that album felt very incomplete, and they said that you know when they released it that it felt very incomplete. Um, but in that in that same way, it felt very raw, but it still needed something. And S and M, I think, was willing to give. Yeah. So Ethan, hearing all of that, oh, we we need to we need to give our first thoughts. Yeah, we're like forty minutes so, in. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're way past first thoughts. <laughs> yeah, Grant. Uh, well, Ethan, we'll start with you because Grant and I have been talking for a while. Kind of where at the beginning of this episode, where do you sit on Metallica? Um, I, um, Metallica was also my first kind of plunge into well dream theater was really my first plunge but that was more from like a musical standpoint metallica uh or i guess a musician standpoint and metallica was um i mean it's hard to not know about metallica like ride the lightning and you know like stuff like that you just get exposed to it over time you know and so um I <laughs> this is so stupid, but like I I had I didn't really know any of Metallica's deep track stuff until Guitar Hero Metallica came out because I love Guitar Hero so much and I still love Guitar Hero to this day. Me too. And then whenever um, Guitar Hero Metallica came out, me and Lucas played the crap out of it. You know? Yes, we and, did. That um, was so fun. I wish I still had it. And that was kind of my very, very, like, I, the only reason that I know so many Metallica songs is literally just because of Guitar Hero Metallica. And I played that game for a long time. And uh, <laughs> that's a very, um, that's not a very cool way to discover a band, but that's the truth. Hey, I cannot even tell you the number of, bands and songs that I heard for the very first time because of this. <laughs> yeah. That was the very first time I ever heard Rush, Metallica, uh Dream Theater, Muse, Van Halen. Those the first time I ever heard any of those bands. Megadeth was because of those games. But I think um Death Magnetic was the album that I was really on whenever I had first heard of them. And so a lot of stuff from Death Magnetic. Um, I remember, Ethan, you and me doing a, a jam session of some Death Magnetic songs one time. Yeah, it was awesome. That I, was think awesome. Cy- I think Cyanide is my favorite song from that. From that's, that a, that's, that's a song that's in our first episode. Um, so go listen to the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Cyanide's probably my favorite. Ah, but like All Nightmare Long is so good too. All Nightmare Long is my favorite off that album. 
it's just there's something about cyanide like like literally like whenever i press play on it and it just oh man i still get chills just thinking about that it's just it just hit me it just hit me mm-hmm. you know? but i would say with metallica if i was going to put them on a scale of one ten five being neutral i'm definitely positive towards metallica we we need to hone the scale a little bit more because ten's a pillar, right? Five is neutral. Yeah, Lucas, why are they not a pillar for you? I feel like you're a massive, massive fan. Are you a nine? No, I am a ten. They are. I mean, they're one of the most important bands for me because of the fact that again, I would not be into heavy metal at all had it not been for Metallica. Um, for me, it's. They, they're a band that, as I've gone on, I've found have had less influence on me, even though I love to listen to them. They're not a band that I go to for inspiration. And for me to be one of the four, they have to be a band that I go for inspiration to, or go to for inspiration. So, so you'd put about a nine, like a 9.5. Nine, because I mean, like, like I always talk about that revolving fifth pillar. Metallica yeah. is one of the bands that could be in the top place for that. Uh, yeah, a nine feels like a worthy place for me. I don't. It's going to be so rare for me to ever talk about stuff being a ten that I feel like if it could be in the in the fifth position that I could give it a ten. That's fair. I just want to leave room for that. Like, I feel like giving something a ten should be a big deal, though. It is a big deal. I mean, like, like I said, they, they're one of the most influential bands in my life as far as just com- developing. Like, there was there was a point in like eighth and ninth grade where you could not convince me that Metallica was not the greatest band of all time. <laughs> I mean, just I mean, I literally i I went to sleep listening to Metallica. At one point. Oh, I did too. Putting putting it in my headphones and putting in Justice for All on and just going to sleep. Same. Oh my gosh. I don't know what it is about that album, but the twists and turns are so relaxing. Mm-hmm. I always woke up every time in uh, To Live Is To Die. Really? Every single time. And I always woke up right when it changes from the acoustic part to the weird, but, 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 and it always scared the crap out of me. <laughs> or I would wake up to the transition from that to Dyer's Eve. No. And that would also scare the crap out of me. Yeah. That, that <laughs> and then I remember one time, it really, the thing that scared the crap out of me the most was when I woke up to the, when a man dies, he murders a part of the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember that, like, eighth, uh, you know, 14-year-old me listening to that album for the first time, that, like, scared the poop out of me. <laughs> Um. Yeah. So I mean, obviously they have that, and of course I all any time that I go back to them, I'm just like this is awesome. But they're not. They just don't have quite the edge that my four pillars do. When I hear them, that I'm just like, man, I need to go play my instrument. I want to use yeah. this in my songwriting, like with Iron Maiden, Rush, Queen, and Pink Floyd. That happens to me. That's fair. And they're they're the four bands that do that for me, where I'm just like I'm inspired musically to do something. I think 
then for me, oh man, I, I'm I'm leaning towards like seven or eight. I I feel the same as you, Lee, because anytime that I go back and I listen to Metallica, I'm like, this is good. You know, I think I've just my taste in music has changed a lot since I was into them. But even going whenever I go back, I'm not like. Ugh, how how could I have listened to this? You know, like there are some bands that you listen to whenever you're little, you know, I've, and at the I've time, been, you think it's awesome and then you go back and you're like, oh man. I'm going to I'm going to be honest. I've actually never had that experience. Ever? Nope. I've every single thing that I liked when I was younger, I've gone back to and I was just like, I still like this. Yeah. <laughs> this is still great. Yep, I listened to I them. never had I never had a Nickelback phase or a or a Linkin Park phase or uh Evanescence. I'm not saying that shame on you if you listen to some of those bands. Nickelback, well that's a different discussion. Oh. Um but uh, yeah, I don't have those things where I'm just like, oh, s- 6th grade me is cringing real hard right now. Dude, I I went through a phase where at our youth group, we had this rap group come in one time and I got to meet them and they gave me some of their demo CDs. And I thought I was like the coolest person ever because they gave me their demo CDs. And it was like this weird, like Latin rap. It's like not on Spotify or anything, but I still remember <laughs> some of the song and it was terrible, but I, but I listened to it because I was like, this is what's cool. Cause these guys performed and I know them. So that was, that's like one of my examples of, <laughs> Oh, yeah, like, well, I was like, I was like in fifth grade, fourth grade, and I was like, "Yeah, Latin rap is so cool." <laughs> <laughs> and now it's cool; it's come full circle. But yeah, that's so weird. It's terrible. Well, Grant, what's your first thoughts? So, I think Lucas, you and I are kind of aligned in our first thoughts about Metallica, right? I don't go to Metallica for inspiration, but. Metallica was my first heavy metal band that I liked. I mean, outside of those hair metal guys, which I don't think really count as heavy metal, even though metal's in the name, they're very much more pop, like you said in the first you know, episode, Motley Crue, right? Ozzy Osbourne kind of thing, which, which Ozzy Osbourne with Black Sabbath is, is truly metal, but I mean, like Ozzy Osbourne, his solo career was very um, much more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, Inner Sandman was my first metal song. I heard it on the radio one time. I'm like, hey, that's actually not that bad. And so, you know, I listened to that. And then I listened to the other hits, you know, some of the more accessible stuff, you know, For Whom the Bell Tolls and Wherever I May Roam. And eventually I was able to stomach um, the whole Black album. And I'm like, ooh, I'll look at their other big albums. And then I tried to put on Injustice for All. And I liked the first minute and a half. And then as soon as the big heavy riff, you know, of Blackened came in, I was like, nope, don't want that. And so it took me a little while to, like, stomach it because I was completely new to metal at that point, right? Which is so weird because now Justice is one of my favorite albums of any band, right? Um, And they're certainly, by and large, my favorite Metallica album, right? My two loves of music will always be Thrash and prog. Right, I get the prog from Rush. I'm a huge Rush fan. I was a huge Rush fan at this point. And, of course, the other being Thrash, which is where you know Metallica comes in, right? And so it's just every time I dug deeper into Metallica, I 
I may get disappointed in some cases. Everything after 2000 disappointed me, but everything before 2000, I just left with more appreciation. Um, and it's so weird that 2000 is the dividing mark because I love S&M and then, of course, St. Anger, obviously. But that's not to say that there isn't a great moment on every single record that they have put out. Even if it's just for a few seconds, there's still a great moment on just about everything that they've done. Maybe not every song, but every every volume of work has a good moment. And they're not something, like I said, they're not something I go to for inspiration, but they're kind of the root of my fascination with that heavier, thrashier, punk, you know, new wave of British heavy metal style of stuff. And so they could be considered a pillar, but it's not like they are constantly you know, changing the way that I see music or constantly inspiring me to play a different way. But they are a very important part of my development as a musician. And so that cannot be ignored. And so I would, by Ethan's logic, put them at a 10. Yeah. That's my first I would. I would agree. All right. Well, uh, was there anything else that you guys were wanting to touch on before we move on? I am so excited to talk about the song. We've been talking for an hour. Okay. All right. All right. So when we come back, we are going to be talking about the six songs that we have uh, picked out for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Metallica in their live setting, specifically the SNN album, and we talked about that for a long time. We had a lot of first thoughts, but now it is time to get into the songs for this episode. Now we've picked six songs, and Lucas, why is that? So this is the part where um, we get to talk more specifically about the things that we were discussing earlier in part one. So this is where we really just get into the actual performance of the SM concert. We're going to be looking at how the band and the symphony are interacting with each other, how they have transformed some of these songs. And this is just our way to continue to take you along the journey of introducing you to Metallica. So again, it's not just me picking what are the best songs what are the um, the most popular songs, or what even my favorite are, but rather just continuing to lead you deeper into the Metallica rabbit hole, as well as stringing them together to where they transition well off of each other, and at the end, give you a cathartic experience, an emotional release. So the way that you can go listen to these songs is there's a link in the description of the episode that takes you to a Spotify playlist and you can listen to not just the songs from this episode, but all the, uh, all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So make sure you go check that out and make sure also, if you have not yet, go check out our first Metallica episode. It will very much help to have a stronger understanding of who Metallica is and 
I think we'll go ahead and get started. So our first song is actually going to be kind of a double song because we have a, an introductory song as well. Right, which you mentioned in the first episode. Yes, I did. So this is a, a, a symphonic piece called The Ecstasy of Gold. And this from was the good, rich- bad, and the ugly. Is what? It's from The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. That's right. Uh, this was uh, composed by uh, Ennio Morricone, who unfortunately died last year. Mm. He was like 93. But he did all of those Clint Eastwood westerns. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he's one of the all time great composers. And Metallica has been using this piece as their walk on song pretty much since the band has been playing live. Oh, so it's like a big staple thing. Oh yeah. Like this was not, this was not unique to this show. Like, but the thing is, is that they always played it over the, just like, just played like a a recording of it. And so having the actual symphony play the ecstasy of gold is like an added bonus for all Metallica fans to hear. But they, they played this, they walked out to this even when they were underground. Yeah, they they've been doing it wow. since 1983. Wow. And that was and that was when the first record came out. <laughs> so it's like this is this is this has been continuously uh part of Metallica. Like they're inner these this song and Metallica are almost interwoven with each other. Whenever you go to a Metallica show, the whole crowd sings along with the melodic line, the mm-hmm. and that's like I I have gone to see Metallica live. I saw them in 2010 in Dallas for the World Magnetic Tour, and so of course when the lights go down and you hear that song play, everyone joins together, <laughs> and it's pretty awesome. Then they just kind of slow walk out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They walk out. They have their bows, and then they, you know, play whatever that first song is going to be. Usually, for for a typical Metallica show, I'd imagine it's always something that's super heavy and thrashy and fast, right? But we have something that's very different for S and M, right? Something that's rather slow and groovy. I think that this is one of the most genius decisions. Of the SM concert to start with yeah. Call of Cthulhu. Yes. Um, this was another one of Lars's brilliant decisions. He was the one that was just like, we gotta start with Cthulhu. Lars has made some really dumb decisions, aka yeah. Napster, aka Saint Anger Snare. <laughs> but he also made some really brilliant decisions like mm-hmm. uh, saying no holier than that was not going to be the first single off the black album it's going to be inner sandman and everyone said you're insane mm-hmm. and he was just like trust me this is the single uh, mm-hmm. it's also the one that said we got to start with cthulhu and i under and when you listen to the record you understand why and right. There's gonna there's a lot of people that were very skeptical before S and M about whether or not this was gonna be any good. A lot of people were just like, really? 
they're continuing the setup. They're going to just do this weak symphonic. They're going to do all these ballads of all their songs. Like they're, I think a lot of people are expecting it to be like an acoustic show. Yeah. Not have it be this big, heavy, bombastic whirlwind that it ended up becoming, even though it did Mm -hmm. have the smaller intimate moments. Um, Because I mean, you know, the, the flavor of the mid to late nineties was the MTV unplugged concert. Mm-hmm. everyone was doing those and so you know when you think of oh we're going to have an orchestra with us it's very much you kind of get this feeling of just like oh it's going to be very you know lame sounding I think that with Cthulhu you immediately let all the listeners know you're in for something that is way more than you bargained for and it gives a nice intro to I feel like it gives a good overview of like what the string section is capable of. Like mm-hmm. they, they give it that kind of string orchestral intro too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They they set the mood. Right. Michael Kamen did such a brilliant work with all the arrangements because what Metallica said that they were expecting him to do was just for like them to beefen up what all the guitars were doing that they didn't expect him to like add a completely different musical key. Yeah. That they were just expecting like, you know, to, the, all the strings to like chug along with what they're doing and just have it be a texture rather than this complete accompaniment. Mm-hmm. So they said that whenever they heard his, it was when they heard his arrangement of Cthulhu, that they were completely convinced that this was going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. I wish that we had footage of them reacting to <laughs> the re- the arrangement, just like yeah. the, the shock and awe. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a this this song. I think is just it's a grand statement of of saying you know this this is what the concert's really going to be like. Taking really a deep cut. Call of Cthulhu is not a normal Metallica live stage. Yeah. Like, they dug this one out of the vault to put for this show. So this was not, like, one of those ones just like, well, of course the, they'll do Cthulhu. Like, this, that was kind of one of those things, like, if you were in that show and you heard Cthulhu, you're just like, wait, what? What are they mm-hmm. doing? Mm-hmm. And Right, this, if you've ever heard the original version of Cthulhu, Ethan, it's, it's, I don't want to make any enemies by saying this, but it's rather boring. Yeah, I think that this this is the definitive version of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and I I realized that like when when I was listening to this, I'm like, this is actually this is actually interesting. Like every moment is a new idea, it's, and it's because of the string accompaniment. It's because of the orchestra that makes this song into what it is here, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like that's a. I think that was a good decision, knowing that they intentionally put this at the front you know and Lars like pushed for that it I'm so glad he did because gosh it's just it's a whole nother world it's so freaking epic yeah listening to have to how the um instruments color everything compared to what it was originally and also just to open up with a instrumental mm-hmm. right you're gonna make them wait for those vocals yeah yeah and it makes it when the vocals eventually come in on our next song it it makes it worth it it's makes it, it finally comes in 
it does it does um yeah no i think i think this fulfilled the song mm-hmm. so ethan right. uh were you familiar with the original version of this song before no so this was the closing i had never heard this this was a, this was the, normally the closing song on ride the lightning off their second album okay and um yeah i mean i mean it's a good song but it's not a metallica classic it's one of those ones where it's 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 got some really good moments that maybe could have been executed better um i always liked the song when you know whenever i was first getting into metallica but it was not one that i ever found myself constantly returning to but mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. you listen to this version and it's just like it's on a whole other level. So what was what was your impressions listening to this song, Ethan? I like I said in the beginning, I, I loved how they kind of gave the string section like a highlight at the beginning, you know, just let it sit. I it's like the whole song is just this massive build, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I I did. I will say if if anything kills the song, it's that it's like almost ten minutes long. You know, I is the original that long? Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't have the strings, <laughs> right? It gets stuck in your head because it is. There's some pretty good riffs in here, but also they play them over and over. You know, <laughs> so yeah, it's very symphonic and very like a much like a score. Like you feel like there's movements. You know. Oh yeah. Oh, and that was that was Cliff. That was this is this is one of Cliff's brainchilds, brain children. Is that correct? I don't know. Yeah, but on the original version, you can hear a lot of like bass warbling sounds, and he does some interesting effects there. And it's supposed to mimic, you know, the sound of Cthulhu, right? Like the Lovecraftian creature of the sea, whatever, and just kind of to give that sinister effect. And to an extent, like, I think Cliff does what he sets out to do, Mm -hmm. but the song compositionally just is not, it's not, they haven't matured in that style of um, composition yet. I think once you get to Orion, which is on Master of Puppets, you know, the next album, then you see them begin to mature their instrumentals. Yeah. So, and still have some great bass moments too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the I would say that the length does not hurt this song because again, this is this is this is the opening salvo of a very long concert, and I think that the song just so expertly just continues. Yeah, it continues to put the pressure on as it gets closer and closer to the end. Especially when the end is insane, though. Yeah, when I, it starts the, getting into the bump, the bump, it starts getting faster. No, I'm talking like 30 seconds left in the song. Oh, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Bah, bah, like because I was listening to the song again in my car, and it and it's just like like whenever I got to that moment, I was just like, "Dang, that orchestra makes that sound massive." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also and has. It, my single favorite Lars live moment when he does those quick snare rolls right at the end. For some reason, that little moment just like makes me so happy inside as a drummer. It's Lars gets burned so much because he's made a lot of dumb drum decisions. 
But that little mm-hmm. moment when they do the first, there's something about it on just a primal level for me that just like gets me excited every time I hear that little moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Ethan, you're right. The strings just make this so much better because the original version, it just never sounds like it's going to end, right? But here, you know, we do end and then we go into, you know, one of their biggest songs of all time with an orchestra. So unless you guys have anything else to say. No, I love it. I'm ready. Um, By the way, uh, I always, with our... uh, Whenever I research uh, an artist for an episode, I always make a ranked playlist oh, of their songs. Yeah. So, The Call of Cthulhu makes it to number 28 on my list. And honestly, a good deal of why it's higher is because of how good the live version of this song is. Yep. It bumps it up for me to get it into kind of that S tier category. But then. So the way that the way that we get from Call of Cthulhu to Master of Puppets is just musical brilliance. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> it just there's that's even a catharsis moment right there at the beginning of the set, just going right into that song. Uh, it's just whew, it it punches you in the gut. It's the strings. It's the orchestra that mm-hmm. does it, and. I'm really glad that I didn't use Master of Puppets in my first episode, so that way that I could use it for here. And a lot of people are probably going to be just like, oh, why aren't you using the studio version of this song? You know, this is... Why are you talking about the live version? Mm -hmm. This is one of those ones where I don't think you could ever be so bold and rash to say that any version is better than the studio version because yeah. it's master of puppets it's it's maybe the greatest metal song of all time mm-hmm. but i mean good Lord. i think it's ballsy to to pseudo open with this song with your string uh-huh. it's like they do a deep cut to introduce the orchestra be like we're not messing around and then immediately it's just like and also we're just going to do this song right now yes like and show you that all of these songs are going to be this exactly good. i think that again master putting master of puppets right there is a statement it's yeah. it's a you know it's kind of like okay we just surprised you now we're gonna really this this is this is the hook right here to pull you in for the rest of the show we mm-hmm. we hit you with call of cthulhu and master of puppets and do it incredibly and now you're gonna lick up whatever else we put in front of you yeah it's brilliant it's brilliant the way that they put it together and they already have the crowd like on their like i mean he has the crowd repeating lyrics in the second freaking song Mm -hmm. you know well that's just (laughs) like like the second like like the third line of lyrics of the second song of the third line of lyrics in the entire set and he's like, you sing it, you know. Or fourth, because there's an ooh yeah there. <laughs> oh yeah, forgot about forget. The, yeah. With James Hetfield, you cannot leave those out. You cannot, especially him in the '90s. He was an ooh yeah. When when he uh, in the early days, he was more like a wow wow yeah kind of singer. But then he became the ooh yeah guy that we know today. Mm-hmm. But. Um, 
no, Ethan, you're right. Like, the audience is going to sing along. That's just how Metallica concerts are. They're so loud, not only because they play loud, but because everybody is singing along. Because but, just but that's how fact, Metallica is. To the context, though, of the appearance of Metallica's popularity going down, you know, in the 90s, and then coming out with a a concert where they know the crowd knew that they were taking a risk to go to this concert because there were strings, you know? Oh, it's true. Like you have to think about it. Like from their, from the crowd's point of view, they had no idea that this song was next and they had no idea what they were buying into, you know? And it pulled off so well that they were. Ecstasy of gold called Cthulhu. And then they hit them with this and, and like, you can still hear the crowd just like, pretty much thinking this is the coolest thing of their entire life, which it probably was at that which, moment. Yeah, <laughs> I would think it is. It's really cool seeing the video for this song because as soon as that intro riff begins, you see everyone... Because l- they're sitting down during Cthulhu. Yeah. And then as soon as Master of Puppets starts, everyone stands up. And it's not any <laughs> command of anyone on stage. They just... He just he gets to that but a bound a bound a bound a bound a bound a bound and everyone just rises and moves to the front of the stage. Mm-hmm. It's it's just the, the power of that riff and that song. Let's let's just talk about regardless of this version. Let's talk about Master of Puppets in general because yeah. this, like I like I was saying earlier, this is always part of the discussion of what is the greatest metal song of all time. It's usually between this or Iron Man or Hallowed Be Thy Name or, um, you know, Holy Wars as far as just, you know, what's what's the greatest metal song of all time. And I wanted to kind of throw it to you guys and see if do you believe that Master of Puppets is that level of song to be worthy of that discussion? Ethan, I feel like it, that's it's fair. I I don't know. It's just I, I guess my vote is yes. My vote is yes as well. I think that if they're going to you know, as far as like true metal is, obviously Inner Sandman is their biggest song, but like as far as the true roots of metal are, like that epic that everybody's like, Oh yeah, metal intensity, heaviness, you know. This is their major contender and they're the biggest metal band in the United States and one of the biggest in the world. It's just, it's, it is no contest that this is one of the greatest metal songs of all time. Right. And it should be in the running for the greatest metal song of all time. I think there's a serious competition between this and Hallowed Be Thy Name, for example. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I mean this this song just has such a massive legacy to it. Especially, I would say now yeah. it's even maybe eclipsed uh, Sandman as far. Oh yeah, like it's it's obviously in the '90s and even I would say the 2000s. Sandman has reigned supreme as the Metallica signature song. But I would mm-hmm. say in the 2010s, it's kind of reverted back to Master. Oh yeah. Oh, I hope. It's just this is this is this has become their calling card song. And mm-hmm. it's it's just 
what other songs are even contenders against this song? As far as in their catalog? No, as far as like best metal song of all time. Uh, one. I would, yeah, one is. <laughs> but any non Metallica um, songs? Oh. You've got a couple of Sabbath songs like Paranoid and Iron Man and War Pigs that are all thrown around for greatest metal song. Hallowed by Their Name is always in there. I usually see Holy Wars put in there as well. Cemetery Gates. Um, Painkiller. Painkiller. Oh, man, that's a good one. I just don't feel like any of those are as... really compete. I don't think that any of them feel as like visceral as master of puppets oh for sure i mean there i i there still, was a level of all the songs are good i i don't feel like any of them have the same energy that master of puppets has especially on the the like the bridge mm-hmm. the master master it's just like dang it's just the, so good the the thing about master of puppets is a lot of the other songs that we're mentioning have like a very specific mood tied to them and it's usually like a like a sad victim mood right like uh hallowed be thy name is like oh i'm going to go get executed and holy wars is all like oh i'm a victim of the system and now i am going to become a murderer i guess right <laughs> but what a great but well you know what i mean right but that doesn't mean that they're bad songs i mean they're they're great they have metal lyrics but the way that Master of Puppets is recorded and the way that it's performed and the way that the lyrics are, there's like a level of aggression. It's like, yeah, I'm doing your I... master, right? Yeah. Like gang vocals and speed and the speed guitars. Like every riff that they do in this song is just could be a song. Yeah. Song. And this is like a Tony Iommi. This is like a Tony Iommi song where it's got like 10 of the best riffs in one song. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you're, you're, the first three riffs in the song could be a contender for greatest riff ever. You've got that, yeah. that opening, and then you've got the main one, and then you've got that verse riff. And it's got the uh, 21 over 32 time signature. Oh, yeah. Classic. Which is, which is nowhere else in music ever. Right, only in this song, but it's not because they wrote it that way, it's just because they felt like throwing something in there weird. And when you play together for that long, you happen to be able to follow. And each honestly, other you don't feel it being so weird well. when you listen to it. No, you don't. It feels right, right? If you if well, you were to make it five eight, you know, which is the closest thing, it just doesn't feel the same. Right? It just kind of throws you around, it's like, ooh, that's weird. Um, which like that was my introduction to this song was seeing a video of like oh what's the weird missing time signature in Master of Puppets and I never heard the song so I'm like what are they talking about maybe that'll make me want to listen to the song and I watched that video and they're trying to figure out that one portion I'm like ooh that's a cool riff and so I listened to the song and I'm like a minute in and like, have, they haven't even played the riff that's in question I'm like it must just be a bridge riff and then it's the main riff I'm like oh this is going to be an epic this is going to be this is going to be a real whirlwind. And I was not disappointed. Certainly for the um, the bridge section, right? Where it, it kind of breaks down and then the acoustics come in or the clean guitars come in and you have that that clean harmonized solo. Ooh, One of the, man, that and a rare section. Hetfield solo as well. That's true. That's true. 
not the only one that we're going to see in this show, Mm -hmm. but, uh, and that's true. And it's, there's only one song where there's a Hetfield solo and no Kirk solo. There are many songs that have two solos and Hetfield plays one of them. Um, And this is one of those. I think, I think ride the lightning is one. And I think, think four horsemen is one i might be wrong i don't know but uh there's of course the crazy wild kirk hammett solo at the end and there's a there's a and i don't know if he says it here but um james hetfield actually forgot the lyrics you know to like right before the kirk hammett solo and of course he says fix me but he had completely forgotten what he actually written for like the first few performances after that and so he just said pancakes instead and he just decided to keep it and so sometimes you know they'll perform live and he'll just scream pancakes instead of fix me (laughs) um and in that solo there's a lot of weird tidbits to this song in that solo um that kirk hammett plays there's that really high run where it seems like he goes you know very early on in the solo um that was not intentional. He actually bent the string off the guitar and it just like fretted up. And that was just the best take that they had. And so, you know, they decided they would keep it. And he's, and Kirk has been trying to replicate that live, but he's never been able to do it. <laughs> it's so sad, um, but it sounds great. And it's, a, it's one of those little tidbits that you wouldn't really know about the song unless you kind of knew it, um, which is, it's, it adds to the whole lore of the song. And I think that's another reason why it's just one of the biggest metal songs of all time. So Lucas, this is a bit of a controversy and I, well, okay, maybe it's not a bit of a controversy, but it's, it's a bit of a mystery, I should say, um, about the lyrics of the song and the meaning. Oh, it's about drugs. Okay, cool. Epic. Yeah. About how, um, you originally, are the master, but then the drugs become the master. See, I never, I never picked up on that until I understood the chop your breakfast mm-hmm. on a mirror line. As soon as I understood that, every piece fell yeah. into place. Right where he's talking about cocaine, I thought he was just talking about some like violent act of like killing another person and then like eating them for breakfast on a mirror for some reason. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. It's and a- I, I thought it was like you're part of this – maybe you're part of this violent Ponzi scheme or maybe it's like the Mad at Religion song. But yeah, and and I think there was a – there was a thing that where Hetfield said that he wrote it about drug addiction. But later on he realized that the reason it was so um, accurate is because he was talking really about his own um, – addiction to alcohol just yeah i mean really it doesn't have to be about a specific kind of addiction i mean the 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 chop your breakfast real is a very explicit reference to cocaine but it's about anything that when you start off you believe that you have control over it and you all of a sudden wake up one day and realize that it actually has control over you it is the master of puppets and not you and just about the 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 panic and the 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 horror of realizing that 
your entire perspective has been wrong this whole time and the loneliness it creates and then and the fact that once the the script has been flipped all you hear or see is laughter laughing at my cry that you're not the master mm-hmm. but the puppet Oh, that's a lot deeper than I thought it was. Yeah. It it is it that's another reason why it is one of the biggest metal songs of all time. Is because the more you dig, the more you get out. Right. So it's a it's a it's a good song. Now Lucas is gonna try to defend to me why the orchestra is good on this song. And actually, listening back, I think you're right. There are some moments where, you know, especially not during the main riff, right, where there, where's, there's some more melodic riffs happening. The strings add a whole mm-hmm. lot. Here's the thing. You have, to, you have to take it in context with the show. It's one of those things to our... When you are coming off of Cthulhu, and then you have this massive eight-and-a-half-minute monolith that comes right after it, the strings just help to continue to push that energy forward. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they don't impede too much on the chugging Mm-mm. riffs either. It's it's like compositionally, there's there's this understanding of, of space still. Even though there's so many instruments on the stage and so many instruments that can be played, there's still the understanding that maybe they don't need to be all the time. And I think that, that, you know, listening back, there can be a really strong argument for why this is, this is a, a great version of the song, a great live version. I would Probably say this the is the best version. live version of the song. But I mean, just, I don't like the xylophone in the middle. Oh yeah. No, that was weird. That was weird. I don't think I've ever recognized that before. It's panned all the way. It's panned super far to one side. I know what you're talking about, Ethan. And but it, it's it's on the da na 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 na. There's like a glockenspiel that's like copying it, and I was just like, "What is this? Like my baby loves Metallica." <laughs> oh, I was I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking of like the actual wooden xylophone or whatever. Yeah, it's in the song. Well, I was thinking about a different moment, but there are some. I think very, 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 and I want to stress this, very rare moments in S&M where, at least for me personally, that the orchestra does not deliver as good as maybe it could have, or maybe even worse, it did something that it shouldn't have. Yeah, but good but lord, objective. though. To, to ask perfection of someone that had to write a a score of orchestral accompaniment to that two and a half hours of music. That's what I'm saying. In two and a half hours of music in which style has never been really mm-hmm. scored to That's before. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is that this was, this has never been done before. In this, well, in okay. this area of at music this scale, into this. In this, in this, uh, at this scale, at this intensity, this style, this had never been done before, right? And you have so many instruments to worry about, so many different sounds to color the songs with. 
that you're right to ask perfection is you can't you can't you can't ask for perfection in this and even still there are very 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 few moments in the entire performance where there's anything that makes me go eh could have been better mm-hmm. you know and so put aside the 0.1%, 99.9% of it is made so much I don't want to say better because I'd still like the album versions of all these songs but it it creates a whole different wonderful mood and that is quite the achievement to take something that was already completed and make 99.9% of it unique mm-hmm. and your own well said I think with that we can move on to the next song alright this is something that was not actually no on so there were two record. songs for the S&M concert that they wrote specifically for that show this is the much better of the two songs that they wrote. Minus what human. was the other one? Yeah. Oh, a, I remember that. A, <laughs> it was it's dash okay. human. On Spotify, it's just human. They didn't even add in the minus sign. <laughs> it's one of those ones where it's just like, this is this is like the kind of song you expect to find on Loader Reload, like in kind of like the boring area. But freaking No Leaf Clover yeah. might be one of the best <laughs> songs that they wrote in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, oh, yeah. Master of Puppets, I put it number two on the ranked playlist. I think Ooh. I think one just barely scratches ahead of it, which I can say that because it's in our previous episodes, so that's not spoiling anything. Okay, <laughs> This not, but not this no. version of it. Just me- the. I don't use the live version in any of my rankings. Yeah, like obviously one. with No Leaf Clover, I have to because that's the only version of the song. So No Where's Leaf no Clover leaf? is. I gotta. I gotta do some counting here. Ten, twenty. Yep. Thir- Thirty-two. Which again. All right. This wow. is this That's is a band high. that you're in the seventies and you're you've still got great songs. <laughs> out of, out of Ooh, how many? How let's many find out. Not that many. I mean, they don't. Tend to put well, out that music. they've got 164. Because I mean, uh, you've got all the Garage Inc. songs, which really adds to the total. So it's still in the top oh, yeah. 33rd percent. Top 30% of, of songs. Which is so yes. good for Metallica. They, so good for them. I'm very excited for the uh, Bad this is gonna podcast. Be so far. You've hyped me up. It's going to be pretty bad. Uh, yeah. Metallica has written simultaneously some of the best and some mm-hmm. of the worst music of all time. <laughs> I didn't know that No Leaf Clover was only on... Yep, they wrote it uh, for SNL. the show with the orchestra. Right. Um, my my introduction to this song, I actually didn't know SM existed before I, you know, heard this song. It was just on YouTube. And I'm like, ooh, Metallica did a song with an orchestra. And then I listened to it. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. I wish they would have done more like this. It was part of a whole concert. You know, 
that it was part of a whole concert, right? It was just, it was so, it's such a different feeling. Like, not only is it, is the orchestra completely changing the way that the song flows, and it's really an integral part of the song. It doesn't sound like the orchestra's just No, it's, in, right? like, you can tell uh, that the, this was written side by side. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, it, and it's just the playoff of orchestra to guitar to all the other instruments. Oh, my Lord. I think the dynamics in this song are... Because I, I remember... I've always really liked this song, actually. It's just... It feels so good building up into that down, like, when it comes to oh, being... Yeah. It, every time it gets there, I'm just like, yeah. And the... Yeah. Which I feel really <laughs> stupid that I only recently realized that that was the same thing that the orchestra was playing at the beginning of the song. I never put two and two together with that. Oh, I think... Oh, yeah. You, you just I don't know, put that like, two it's two so together. obvious, but yep. I don't know why I never put made that connection. It, to me, it's just so incredible and shocking that they made such a great song that according to my ranked playlist there's only one song from either load or reload that is better than this song ooh and that's fuel fuel is really? awesome oh yeah you don't fuel, think is, fuel awesome. is better than this i think so yeah uh, actually no you're right cuz no like, fuel is, really is a yeah, great song. It kind of made me think for a second, but then I was like, if anything, I yeah, think this song, yeah. I think that the the only thing that this song suffers from is it it can feel a little pop. Yeah, but it's mm, really well sense. written. It's it's good. I and it still keeps that Metallica edge on it, but like once it starts getting to like the end where it's like and it comes to be mm-hmm. when it comes to you know and it's like repeating that it's just kind of like oh this is like a lot more like heavy alternative mm-hmm. and then it goes back yeah. into the riff you know so it feels a little bit more pop but if they're co-writing it mm-hmm. extra, and just you know, i think that this I, is this is the best that they have ever written in that vein yeah i mean again that's there's there's a lot of more alternative and pop writing tech like building up like like a more traditional build up into a down mm-hmm. chorus you know is not very metal you know and i think it's cool to hear them do that format and you know it's just great mm-hmm. a little clarinet solo in the beginning just yeah it just feels so good also i think that uh then it comes to be that the soothing light at the end of your tunnel was just a freight train coming your way is one of the best metallica lines ever oh man speaking of lines so this song is um about arrogance in yourself and believing that you can do anything and kind of this song being about your luck running out just like they say in All Nightmare Long, your luck runs out, ta. That's uh, that's rather timely. <laughs> I know. For their, you kind of wonder if this was a little autobiographical. But I mean, that's the whole point of No Leaf Clover. 
they don't say that anywhere in the song. Yeah. But it's just meant to be of just, you know, it's a it's meant to be bad luck. But the whole the verses constantly portray someone that thinks that he's indestructible. He he's, you know, good day to be alive. Uh, all the pieces fall to his wish. He's a sucker for that quick reward. He's constantly believing that mm-hmm. everything is on his side. And he sees the the light at the end of the tunnel. And he's just like, yeah, everything's great. Little does he know that it's the freight train that's about to put him down on his butt. See, I thought it was just always about bad luck. But mm-hmm. like it's, 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 it, it is about bad luck, but it's from the perspective of someone that doesn't realize he's bad luck. It's the, 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 the viewpoint mm-hmm. um, is from someone that is delusional, that is that in a way, I guess, believes his own mm-hmm. hype. And just again, I think it's very fitting for where the band was at that point. There's there's a lot of it's drinking yeah, the Kool Aid, as you would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good song though. It is such a good just, song. The the down moments, whenever they yeah, it's just whenever they build it up into those down moments, and you really get to hear the orchestra really finessing mm-hmm. the the lyrics. Yeah, it's just it's very it's telling great. that the orchestra was in on the writing process because there's so many moments that yeah. that normally would not be there in a normal Metallica song for the orchestra. I can imagine being at that show because this this I would say this this kind of comes in at the this like introduces the second quarter of the show. So you're still in the first half, but it's like you've got the first quarter and then this starts like the second quarter. And this is kind of like the song that transitions into some of the softer songs of the set. And I can imagine getting at this point and hearing the intro to the song and as a fan being like, what is this? Because he doesn't say uh, on, on the on the on the series or on Spotify, yeah. they cut out a lot of the in-between talking. But um, in the video version, he doesn't say that this is a new song until after. And so you probably, like, especially seeing how much they're reinventing, you probably as a fan are kind of wondering, just like, what song is this? Because you have to be thinking that they're not going to write a new song for this show. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> Yeah, they've, they've already they, done they, so I, much. I imagine as the song is as the song is going on, they're just like, "What? What is this? Is this brand new?" <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just I think this song is is brilliant, and I just think it's it's so interesting that at the end of the '90s for this for this one-off show that they write one of the best songs of that decade. For them like there's there there's also only a couple of black album songs that are better than this also so i mean like this is mm. i would say this is probably in like this like the sixth or seventh best song of the 90s for them and they and they wrote it for a special show with a symphony well the symphony really I know. It's pretty dope. Played into it. There was there was somebody who uh, in the in the YouTube comments of this was like saying that they like to uh, imagine if this was uh, 
like a song mm-hmm. that's cut from low to reload and just put in here. But if you think about like that's a that's a good sentiment and I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of the genesis of it. But at the same time, you gotta realize there's so much more to this song than just what's happening with the 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 guys in yeah. the band, right? I have a feeling that it's, probably the I have a the, feeling probably the skeleton like, of the song originated from the band and then they brought it to the before it fully developed and brought it to Michael Kane, I was just like, okay, how can we marry this? Hmm. Probably. Same thing. Yeah, with, but yeah, again, Minus, Minus Human. Human is far superior song. Not so good. <laughs> it's not so good. But All right. You had just mentioned that we uh, were going to use No Leaf Clover to transition yes. to some softer songs. We we. We, we do the sure same thing will. Uh, this was this was a song I originally was not considering for putting, but then, but then I because I knew already that it has to be Cthulhu Master No Leaf Clover because I knew that that would give us a great first half. And then I just happened to continue listening, and mm-hmm. I was just like, "Oh, Hero of the Day, that song's okay." And then I kept I list I was listening to that version. I was just like. Oh, this is better than the original. This is incredible. Okay, I got I got to put this. Oh, okay. That's how those some of those load and reload songs are on this on this album. It's just mm. and it's the fact that Hero of the Day is um very much in major and it's very slow and it's so melodic that it just and it's very optimistic. It lends mm-hmm. itself to an orchestra so so well. I was I was shocked when I heard. Yeah, because this, this is this wasn't this wasn't like, on a Guitar Hero Metallica. Happening? This is off of Load, so this is an album probably that you hadn't really heard before. So yeah, I was. So I get to this. I'm just like, I, I guess I had only had one perspective of the kind of music that Metallica wrote. And then I heard this, and I was just like, "Am I like walking through a field of flowers right now?" Yes. What is this? Yeah, this is a very and I guess I was song from Metallica. Um. So a little context here. Load was all about just like completely breaking down all the barriers of what heavy metal is supposed to sound like. Um, this was not the only song they've written in a major, but this was the first one that they have ever written in major. And uh, Hetfield was just really looking to just again, no- nothing else matters really was the beginning of this kind of songwriting because that was on the Black Album. And with this song, you can just feel that this is a song that he wanted to write and that before this was a song that would not have been eligible to be on a Metallica record. But I think that this is a um I think this is an overlooked gem on load. People don't talk about this song as much. Now I do think that there is better on load, but and I think that the S and M version is much better. I think that adding in the orchestral touch really actually gives the song what it needs. I actually have it ranked quite a bit lower just because I have to rank on the studio version mostly. 
but I think that the it's the live version. Just like this is the version of the song you need to hear because it just it opens it up so much more. Like yeah. I put this is number sixty six yeah, on the ranked playlist. But and yeah, still pretty good. Where would you um, put it it would probably there? make it to the forties. Yeah. What okay, I'm gonna the probably the the method I'm gonna start using whenever like if we were to do a Metallica Volume Three, I won't have to add any songs unless they come out with another album by then. And probably what I'll start doing is I'll start taking look listen to all the different versions of a song and rank what's the best version of. That. But that's an that in initial fair. ranking. I have to stick mostly with the studio because I don't have time to listen to every. Ver- song every live i also feel like snm is a special i, I feel like snm is a special case scenario because it's not just like but it's a reimagining of, of it the song yeah it's kind of like some of the whenever we did our volume two for queen it's like mm-hmm. some of these songs are completely different you know so i feel like it's fair to Kind of yeah, if you listen to the album version, it's good. You can tell that a good song is there, but it feels a little empty. But man, when you hear this yeah. version, just like it's huge. Especially when it when it when it really opens up and goes to that double bass groove. And... I was I was confused at that part. Because I, I was like, oh, this is really happy. And then I was like, oh, it's yeah, it's like really metal kind of now. I mean, you know, Metallica couldn't complete. Really what this, and I think that ties into what the song's about, which is the um, the push and pull of grief and overcoming adversity. You've got moments where, um, where the narrator is... Um, pushing through the pain and then other times where the pain is consuming him and so you have these moments where it's you know these happy moments where he's saying i know it's difficult but um you know we can keep going and then you have the 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 minor parts where it's you know it's suffocating and so i think that that's that's what they're in the whole theme of the mama they try to break me which his mother was a very big focus of that record. Because his mother died whenever mm. he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. That's and then sad. his dad died yeah. during the making of that album. Mm. So there's a lot of parental... That would do it. Uh... Uh, influence in the yeah. lyrics of Load specifically. I would say more than Reload even. I mean, you've got Mama Said Until It Sleeps mm-hmm. is about his dad. You know, obviously, you've got Hero of the Day that's got a lot of mother references. So. Yeah. Wow. So, Grant, what is your... Uh, where do you stand on Hero of the Day? 
I mean, it's it's definitely one of those that I look forward to when I'm listening through the load reload era. And, you know, like I said earlier, I think that it being in major really lends itself to some great orchestral arrangements and it delivered, right? Um I don't think I don't think there's too much more just to say about that. And like Ethan, you know, you're right, that that section that was rather heavy. Um you you kind of expect it having listened to especially I I've listened to this song many, many times. Um I just I don't listen to the S and M versions of songs mm-hmm. as regularly as I do the album versions, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Um and it makes a bit more musical sense just because there's some tonal clarity um, that you don't get on S&M that you do get on the albums. Um, yeah. But that being said, I I have to agree with Lucas. I have to say that this is the better version. It's just, man. And I like the song. I like the album version of the song, so I definitely like the S&M version of the song. Um, I didn't realize that there. Well, I mean, I did realize that there was a was a story to it, but I didn't realize that the music plays into the the emotions, like moment for moment. It it doesn't seem like Metallica tends to. Do well, that's that. what that's actually really what they do with a lot of their um, ballads. Which I am, I guess I'm getting to know that now. Um. I just I I never pictured. This, see, this is this is going to be my takeaway for this episode. I already know. I never <laughs> pictured Metallica as being so focused on writing great lyrics. I thought that they, I mean, they write good lyrics. I'm not saying that they're bad, right? Unless it's 2003 and we're writing a garage sounding album, right? Other than yeah, that, as long as they're they not saying that mirrors. they're madly in anger with you. But I, I never, I never pictured Headfield as being a like a. a, a he, I would say, in the nineties in particular, got really good at it. Mm-hmm. Now, like obviously, in the in the early days, it's like off in the dead of night with the four horsemen ride. Or choose your fate and it's, die. It's a bunch like, of 18-year-olds just to that. make really metal-sounding lyrics. Motor breath, it's how I live my life. I can't take it any it other worked way. Time. Right. Right. And I knew that there was more more um, uh, emotion tied with load and reload. There obviously is, right? But there being a little bit more craftsmanship to it rather than just telling a story, but Using the music to aid in that is is it shows maturity that maybe you know someone who is used to the thrash era doesn't really pick up on because they're too busy worrying about why they're wearing <laughs> cowboy hats, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it's just it's fair, right? So, all right. I'm interested in this next song. Because okay. I, I have a burning. So we're going to be talking about uh, nothing okay. else matters now. Really, I guess you could say the song that really set this whole concert in motion because it's what introduced him to Michael Kamen, which meant, of course, it has to be on this set. It's the the song that brought this concert together. Yeah. So, 
Yes. Do you think that this version no. is better than the studio version? No. Not even close. Because I really I, like the I don't agree with song. Grant in that it's not even close. But this song is already fairly orchestral in the studio version. But um, I mean, I think that the atmosphere and the fact that the strings have more prominence in this version is really nice. And I like the change up in the way that Hetfield approaches the melody in this song. I th- I like it. Oh, that's the thing that I hate. Ugh. It's just he sings it. He's it sounds like he's phoning it in. It sounds like he's so close, no matter how far. You know, it's like that's that's something that I really don't like about um, Metallica performing some of their mm-hmm. uh, Black Album songs live is because. They, the Black Album was very, very controlled and very technical and very precise as far as sound engineering goes. Everything was perfect. There was, the Black Album was not a warts and all Uh, album. There was no warts allowed on that album. And so to hear him sing the way that he would have sung it had it been on, um, you know, Load and Reload, for example... Or, or even a, a ballad uh, on, like, Ride the Lightning, right? It wouldn't – I don't know. It's just uh, – it doesn't uh, – I don't know how to describe I, it. I, I think I agree Vo- vocally. I feel like he sounds a lot different in this concert than he does on the studio stuff, um, in my opinion. But I think I like – Whenever like they're doing like the pretty much anytime that they're doing the down guitar stuff, I think that the strings sound awesome and better than the original. And then whenever we get into like whenever the vocals are coming in and some of the more band driven stuff, I think that yeah. the studio I, version sounds better. To me, I think it's it's more that you're I like this because it's not a direct copy. Um and that was the thing I was disappointed of of hearing yeah. the this version on S and M two was that it was a complete copy and paste of the way that they've been playing Nothing Else Matters for the previous ten years. Starting off with the little, you know, Kirk Hammett yeah. guitar solo and then going into it. They played they played it exactly the same way, except with the string accompaniment kind of slapped on top of it. Yes, where I feel like with so this version of Nothing Else Matters, they actually make, make a few number of changes to the song. Like, the way that it doesn't get as big in the choruses. And the way that he's he's messing around with the melody. Yes, he's changing the vocal approach, but to me, I just like that it's it's not the same. That he's they, that they're intentionally making a decision to do it different than they normally do it. And because of that, you're listening to it and just going, yeah. hmm, so they're doing this different. Okay, what else are they going to do? Where? See, I don't, I don't listen to it like that at all. Because this is like, this is the, 
this is the meme. This is the song you don't want to hear Metallica do live because it's going to be six minutes and 47 seconds of James not caring about singing it correctly, right? I, I don't know. It's just I have a lot of mixed feelings because, like, I love the string accompaniment. It's, like, so much more than there was on the album. But at the same time, I love the album version already. So, so much. That's one of my favorite songs off the album. Uh, that's one of my favorite Metallica songs, period. Which, like, you know, where, hey, where's it ranked? Uh, calls me a, call me a fake fan, but. Yeah. I, it's, it's really high. This is a signature song. It, it should be that high. Yeah. This is, and it's it's the eighth song mm-hmm. off of the Black Album, right? It's it's very smart of them because they did they had this formula for Ride the Lightning, Master Puppets, and Justice for All, right? You'd have the kind of unassuming intro, right, for Fight Fire with Fire, Battery, Blackened, and then it goes into the rest of that song that's super heavy and thrashy and loud and fast, right? The rest of those three songs are intense and then you go into the title song which is the epic you know um ride the lightning master puppets and justice for all all three of those songs are much longer have a lot of different movements to them and are are a lot more interesting than your average song and then you have you know your heavy hard-hitting song right so i the beholder and then uh, messiah uh, you mean thing that should not be for whom the bell tolls right think you're right Left and then you have later in the, your in the faux set, ballad the thing it should not be yes then you got your 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 thrash thrashy ballad um with the black album it was different right you started with the kind of same intro with inner sandman and then you had the you had inner sandman but it wasn't really intense right um and then you had you had you had your heavy hitting song sad but true but it was in the wrong spot right to add that familiarity, they had to put their fourth song to be something that was lower, which ended up being The Unforgiven, right? Which was still more accessible. There were some heavy parts to it. There were some intense guitars. It was very much like the ballads that you saw on the previous three albums, right? Um, and so they didn't put Nothing Else Matters there because had they put Nothing Else Matters there, it like, the, the album, album would not have completely flopped. Because any... No, it, it would have. It would have because I mean, it would have. <laughs> I believe have, that. Yeah, but the album would believe, not have. I believe that it would have because it's the album. I believe was was because. on the backs of the songs, not on the album order. Well, okay, okay. It's it's based off release order, right? You want you want you want to know that you're getting into something good, right? If a if a real thrash metal, like true from the roots fan, listens to Inner Sandman, which has nothing interesting or heavy about it, Sad but True, which is you know the heavy song of the album, right? And then Holier Than Thou, which is like what the heck is really happening here? And then it goes into Nothing Else Matters. Then it's like you completely. It doesn't matter though. They already bought the album at that point, so it wouldn't have affected album sales. The whole reason that people are buying the album is on maybe I use singles, which is still the same. 
maybe maybe I used the word flopped too flippantly. Flopped. I I should say it would not have been as maybe not well, successful. It maybe not would have been as well received. Mm. Yes, would not have been as well received. I think that I think that probably wouldn't have been as because objectively it, right? as good. But I don't think it would have made as big of a difference as you're making it out to be. But I understand the point behind what you're saying. Right. And that is that nothing else matters is nothing this, else, you know. This is this is like one of the career-changing songs for them. Because this is the first time that they wrote something that didn't really sound like Metallica. This was a song that Hetfield wrote for himself and never intended to use it for the band. He just this was a song that he just wrote for him. Dang. It's about it this is a about? song that you can really take it two ways because he you can see this as a song for a loved one that's far away saying that, you know, the so close no matter how far couldn't be much more from the heart. Kind of just talking about just like, you know, you're the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters, you know. Like, you can see it as a love song. But the other layer, and the one that I think may be a little more accurate, because Hetfield is never... This is the song he always goes to when he talks about not liking to explain his songs. Because he likes to have a universality to where anyone can attach whatever meaning and make it personal to them. He always says, take nothing else matters, for example. I won't tell you what it really means. It may not even have a meaning at all. It can have whatever meaning you want. The The thing that I see in it is that the song is about the song. It's about them writing a song that's from the heart. About writing a song that people might not like but it's a song that they feel is important for them never going to care about what they do never cared for what they know saying people are going to say that this is a sellout song this is or just this this album in general this is almost a meta song i think the song is really about them it's about them entering into this new phase of kind of abandoning their thrash roots and going in this new direction realizing that you know, at the they they've realized now that the thing that matters most is writing songs that they believe in, that are true to them, that are expressing themselves and showing vulnerabilities and showing a different side to themselves rather than this hardcore metal side. I think that eventually, I think the song is really about coming to terms of who you are as a songwriter. And and being honest with yourself and being okay with being honest with yourself in your lyrics. I had something to say about the meaning, but I think you hit the nail right on the head. And what <laughs> okay. I was going to say is completely irrelevant now. <laughs> that I've never viewed that song like that at all. I always thought it was a love song. But it just makes sense, right? It's slow. Forever trust. Because I mean, who we isn't are. that not is that not the Metallica uh, mission statement? Forever trust in who we are. Because I mean, that that's that's what they've always done. That's what's allowed them to make all of these crazy risks with their careers. 
they they trust that what they're gonna do that the the band will it won't kill the band even though it almost did many times mm-hmm. well that's just part of the Metallica story if if you're not one album that's away right from or killing one the band then you're not Metallica. or one strange side project <laughs> away yeah oh lord yeah we could get into that but we won't um we get yes we do a do you know what's really interesting actually i knew that headfield did the solo on this song but something i found the very interesting about the studio version is that kirk hammond is actually not on the song at all Yeah, oh, he yeah, doesn't play there's, any there's nowhere for him to uh, lead lines. He doesn't play any rhythm track. It's everything Headfield. Uh, well, he's the video the is video, just is them goofing around in the studio. So yeah, he's there. I don't think I don't know if he's playing anything, but he's in it. Okay. Yeah, Jason's doing uh, shooting hoops with the bass strapped around him. Speaking of Jason, we get some. Uh some great mm-hmm. BGVs here like we did in Hero of the Day. So that that helps to add to the texture and add to their live sound. Like that's that's a big part of their live sound, I think, in the nineties was Jason being on par with James, right? There were some shows where like James would completely blow his voice out and Jason had to finish the show singing lead on a lot of the songs and he would and it would be a great time and he'd bring the energy and bring the the uh, the youthfulness that he had to the mm-hmm. to each of the songs that he sang and here we can see a completely different side of that you know yeah. vocal talent Ethan now that you've kind of heard the story around the song has this kind of changed your perspective of this song I mean I I love this song, you know, it's, I've, I've already liked the song. I just, um, the, I just like the strings. (laughs) That's why the, the opening remark, I was just like, just, I, I am torn Mm -hmm. between like just the musicality of it, you know, knowing more of the lyrics, obviously with everything, it, it gives more context, but yeah. I think you ranked it. All right, well, it's time to go to our grand finale then. Yes. Uh, The perennial set closer for all Metallica shows. Usually main set and then have something else for the encore. I'm surprised. I know. Well, just, man, they're they're a band that has so many songs that there's still classics we haven't talked about. Uh, oh, for sure. This the beginning of this feels yeah, like a, it does like a James Bond movie. Enter right, Sandman, so the 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 one, the only. I I like the fact that with this episode, I kind of get to throw some of the songs that you wouldn't expect to be covered in a live episode. Because this is another one, kind of like Master of Puppets, where you're just like, well. Why aren't you talking about the studio version, man? Um, but, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're going to do a live episode, you've got to go with their big closer. 
And I think everyone yeah, should like, know this song. Duh, so it's cool everyone's it heard this new song. Context. So it's not like I'm going, if you've never heard Inner Sandman before, I think that this is, yeah, it's a, it's a cool way to kind of give you a different version of it. Um, like I was saying earlier, um, Inner Sandman is the song that made Metallica. I mean, this this is one of the defining songs of 90s rock. Like, I'm sure that there are, you know, many babies know this song. It's just one of those songs that's just like every single sporting event you've ever been to has this. Yeah, it is a it is a um, <laughs> yeah. Say your so prayers, little be one. Surprised if children know it. <laughs> um, there there is some interesting story to the yeah. Lyrics um, of this song, of course. Originally, this song was supposed to be uh, about children dying in their beds, very explicitly. And and the label yes. and Bob Rock was just like, eh, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a good idea. How about you change some words here or there? And it kind of made it a little more insinuated, mm-hmm. more of a more of a, a fear of the dark boogeyman song mm-hmm. rather than you know cradle death. It's still pretty yeah. intense. Yeah, it's a little intense. Yeah, it's still intense, but it's, I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, a song about being afraid, you know? Yeah. And not a song about It fits more with the aesthetic dying. of the Black Album. Um, yeah. This is another, we have to yeah. credit Lars for being the genius that he is for pushing this song to be the lead single of the album. Can you imagine a world where Holier Than Thou mm-hmm. was the first single released? No. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not, not a bad song close at all. It's not the best but... on the album. No, but it's... it's and the, the crazy thing, though, is that Lars was the mind. only one that disagreed with them. Everyone in the band, everyone at the label, and the studio all were in agreement. Holier Than Now is going to be the first one. And Lars just would not stop bugging them and telling them, you're wrong. Sandman has to be the single. And they all like laughed at him. But he wouldn't stop bugging them as Lars does. And finally they're like, fine. We'll put Sandman out first. And that's the whole reason why Metallica rose to that level is on the back of Sandman. He just How Lars he has the Sorry. he has the sixth sense. Sometimes it doesn't lead him in the right direction, but he just he he has a good gut. He just knows. He has that feeling, the same feeling that tells him we've got to open the show with Cthulhu. To where he just he just <laughs> he just knows. Wow. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a reason why he always will be the driving force behind Metallica. Because, um, I mean, if you don't know, it's his band, even more so than it is James's band. Even, yes, James is a founding member. Mm-hmm. Really, James yeah. joined his band. James, Lars picked the name. Lars picked he the name. was the one that put out the ad that James found. And came and auditioned. 
even though Lars was the only member at that time. It was still it was still James showing up and going, Hey, I want to be in your band, not hey, let's start a band together. I mean, Lars Lars is the genesis and he will it will go until he says it's done. Well, I mean, one can make an argument mm, that if James says never underestimate Lars. If if it was another if it was another band, I would agree with you, uh, but Lars is someone that if he wanted to keep doing it, he would find a way. That's fair. Why do I agree? Oh, I shouldn't be agreeing to that because James is Metallica. Yeah, but like, from a, from but a PR ultimate, standpoint, right? Yeah, Lars yes. is the brain, but only on the surface. He he is the one that like he's the one that it's really it was really interesting watching the documentary series of the making of death magnetic um because they when they write all of their songs they don't write the titles they kind of just like they listen back to the final mix of the song and they like have a group discussion of what the title of the song should be and Lars is always the final say on what the song is supposed to be called and he didn't write any of them like he like they'll all be like going oh yeah you know what um this the first song should be called almost like your life and Lars is like no it needs to be that that last line when he says that was just your life that's a better song title and they'll all go you know what you're right it's like they it's like he's the he's the the pied piper once he speaks up it's kind of everyone just goes oh okay Hmm. Uh, so it's just I, Lars, he is the the fallible genius because again he's he's led them on ex- expeditions that were less than fruitful, but also at the same time he's the he's the one that has led them to fame and glory. Yeah, I think I think you have to look at it as which one if they left would do the everyone, most damage in the in the Everyone jokes that it should have been James. I mean it's a it's a morbid joke and I I've never liked this joke, but talking about how Lars should have been the one that was in Cliff's seat when the bus turned over. Oh. I I've mm-hmm. heard stories where because they drew cards yep. to determine where they wanted to be and i think it was like cliff got the spot that everybody wanted Mm -hmm. to get and it was the ace of spades right because their motorhead fans that let you choose where you wanted to sleep in the bus and kirk wished that it was him because it was it was between him and kirk at or yeah it was between cliff and kirk at that point as like who who's gonna sleep where and he like he said for a while he like blamed himself for the reason why cliff died and he said it should have been him Right. And yeah, to hear that. like Kirk Hammett say that or something to that mm-hmm. effect, right, is crazy because like it's I don't know. Somebody who as somebody who was introduced to, you know, their favorite genre of music, you know, and will forever probably be their favorite genre of music, 
by this band with this lead guitar player with these crazy fast intense soloing and wonderful technicality and it to hear him say it should have been me who died yeah but like, yeah the, the long running joke is always that Lars should have been and and everyone talks about Lars is the worst musician in the band and he's a terrible drummer and stuff but he really is the most yeah yeah or the least expendable member of the band because he just again That's all true. these guys can write all this music but he is the one that always has the sense of knowing what music stays and what goes he he is the arranger of the band he's the one that knows how to put all of the riffs together to make a song he's just it's just Lars is the man whether you like his drumming or not he's the he's the mm -hmm. one that relentlessly passed their tapes around until they got a record deal like everyone in the music scene knew about little Lars trying to pedal his little metal band around and then all of a sudden they became the biggest metal band in the world like you know he's he's the reason why Metallica is where they are and so um all, all that whole conversation from talking about he knew that Inner Sandman was the song. So I guess we should talk more about Sandman now. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's something I've always thought and I wanted to kind of <laughs> make that statement because I, I don't like as much all of the Lars bashing. I don't think he they I don't think people really know what they're saying whenever they are. It's a it's a good joke. I'd I'd say it's a tired joke at this it's point. It's always a good funny ha ha. It's run. It's not funny anymore. Okay. Well, it's not because of that. Not to you, because you're a drummer. I just I just think that it's, it's it's one of those things where it's it's too easy of a target at this. Point. Low hanging fruit. That's true. It was it. It was it's funny true. the first couple thousand times. Anyway. So let's talk about Sandman <laughs> as a song. Um, okay. The, the music was actually, and this is, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you another reason why Lars is a genius. So Kirk Hammett wrote this song originally, wrote the guitar line, and originally the riff was just supposed to be the instead of you know how that the first part of the riff repeats three times before the take. So Kirk originally was mm -hmm. gonna just have it be the like a just a two-part riff that first part and then immediately goes into the tail and you just repeat that over and over just listen to that in your head and imagine how dumb that sounds yeah lars was the one that heard the riff and yeah. said no don't play it like that <laughs> do the the first part three times then put the tail like he just he has that that mm -hmm. brain what? Yeah, he's a producer. A producer brain. And so, again, just you think about what would life be like if that was the, what the Inner Sandman riffs sound like. Maybe they would have agreed that Holier Than Thou should have been the first single. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But that's that's a common thing in 
thrash mm-hmm. though is you have the three and then the one right master of puppets does that right you get the for the three and then the is the four right and that's just that's some of the best thrash songs some of the best groove songs you know pantera to a lesser extent has a lot of that three and then you do the change up on the four right um not to sound like I'm talking about the same vein, but Megadeth, right? If you really want to dig deep, it's always that fourth um, thing where there's a difference, right? That fourth repetition where there's something special that leads into the turnaround, right? And so I think that Lars just understood that idea before that was really, that connection was really made in all of music mm-hmm. to be like, oh, but yeah, hey, I mean, this just, is a you know, thrash that thing. riff like, has gone on to become one of the most iconic riffs of all time. No. Yeah, don't don't play it in a guitar store. Um, OK, so <laughs> Ethan, what's what's your uh, what's your opinions on this song and uh, specifically on the S&M version? I. I, well, again, I think it's it's cool that they're they're still ending their. I'm saying this is the last one because of the end mm-hmm. of the. Well, it, they have one song on at the very, end, at the very the end, but it's okay. But I I think it's still cool for them to be like we end with this song, mm-hmm. so even with the string section, we're gonna end with the song. You know, like kind of the attitude of it to not like feel pressured to like put all the uh, really good songs at the beginning to try to get an easy It's always win, great to have you know? a song you know has to be played um, and you make them wait for it. I think the string arrangement is really unique because they build a lot of like kind of weird horror movie tension in the first half, but I think the the song um the song is good. And and I, um, oh, how do I even say this? I, as I was listening to the song, because I had never heard this version before, so I'm listening through. I'm like, okay, Inner Sandman. They added strings. The string arrangement's good. You know, it's not a throwaway. Nothing special. You know. And then it reaches the halfway point. Yeah, where they do the fake ending. You know. And I was like. What is this? And then, and then, that's and what then it comes sets right back the, in the pinnacle song. Oh yeah, that's. Oh, it's awesome. The like super like creepy kind of horror movie. I mean, it's a song about yeah. being afraid of the dark or afraid of monsters as a child. You know, like kind of, you know, and so adding in like. Mm-hmm. There, that that's your catharsis moment very specifically it's, you know it's that rip like, back like, in like I love that like like something is like sneaking and yeah. crawling and hide, then hiding and then crawling and hiding again you know mm-hmm. like like very much like a score you know and I mean that that's the moment you know where I was just like what are they doing and then, oh, no, no, no. but then they add that that weird, like high end, creepy, like na 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 na. Yeah, but then from that point on, I mean that that was where I was just like, oh dang, this yeah. song is 
they take a little bit more liberty in that um, that kind of down section right before yeah. the, the they, great they finale. They really yeah. arranged this one, <laughs> and I think that's what makes it so special. Yeah. I originally did not like this version at all. I originally hated this version because of that. Because it just, it didn't, I felt like the, the orchestra was taking too much of the, the, uh, the thunder. Well, if the, you, if you recall, they uh, actually get top instruments. billing. It's not M and S. It's S M. I, <laughs> I, well, it's, I said it's just I multiple sclerosis. Right. So, uh, it's just, I'm okay with it now because I feel like I have matured in my musical tastes. But when I first heard this whole, you know, the whole S&M album, I was like, come on, just get on with it. I don't want to hear the like eight more times. That's okay. You know, I thought go this, back to the guitars. I remember hearing S&M for the first time, just right. going, oh, it doesn't sound like the original. Yeah. It's like, yeah. But it's like, don't you understand the point of the album? It's not supposed to sound like. If yeah, you wanted to and, do it like the original, we would have just released a regular live. Yeah, it's it's very um, it's just one of those things that you just have to be. You have to have the understanding mm -hmm. behind it if you're going to really truly appreciate it for what it is, and if you don't have that understanding, that you're not. And so, my um, encouragement to those listening is, even if you're a huge Metallica fan you still are going to need to listen with an open mind, right? Um, if you've never heard S&M, right? If you're a huge metal fan, you're going to still need to listen with an open mind because this is not what you're normally going to get from a um, metal live album. And that's okay. And in this case, that's actually great. You get something that's new and exciting and wonderful if you're willing to give your ears the time and the space just to another really day understand what's happening musically. Yeah. All right. Well, do you guys have anything else? I I would like to throw a teaser out um for next week's episode because at the end of Inner Sandman, the song that's first on our next week's set list <laughs> is freaking dope to go into. Oh, that's Sandman's true. Over. It is awesome every time that it's like thanks for coming out it's like the crowd dies down and then the crowd like another crowd but that's i mean it's still crowd noise it's like they start cheering and then it's a completely different i, I guess i forgot to mention we're actually like, gonna have a theme awesome. for the month of april <laughs> our th our three um band related um episodes so all of them except for our history of music episode at the end of the month is all going to be uh live recordings but all three of them are going to be very different from each other. So, like, I, I wish that if, if at the time, I guess, that they're listening to this, go back and listen to Enter Sandman and then let it go into our, the next song on the, on the list because it is just a yeah. sweet. <laughs> it is sweet. And I love live albums. I, I would way rather, if there was a way I could. I've only I've become to live I've become a very big life, fan of live albums. Really, me too. And I, man, I just feed on the energy, man. 
I just I like playing live better than playing in the studio. Mm-hmm. It just you can just yeah. feel it. I, you can just feel. I feel what the crowd feels inside there. You could yeah, argue that guess, our music history episode I guess is a live album. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Kind of. <laughs> it's intended to. Then be again, I guess live. you can say that about all of the music kids because it's all not being played in the studio. But this one is more so. This is a performance. Anyway, we'll go ahead and take a another break here. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Metallica S&M. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our songs for the week uh, from our Volume 2 of Metallica, which was The Ecstasy of Gold, The Call of Cthulhu, Master of Puppets, No Leaf Clover, Hero of the Day, Nothing Else Matters, and finally, Inner Sandman. And now it's time for our last segment of the night before our special bonus episode, which, uh, seriously, go to the Patreon. You do not want to miss talking about Metallica's worst songs, (laughs) or so I'm told from Lucas. Um, but now it's time for final thoughts. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, we talk about, we kind of give the one to 10, where are we at with the band? What do we think about them? Uh, how do we hear about them? But now it's kind of time to, after getting some more context about the band, uh, we kind of give a re-ranking and kind of, uh, how this new context has affected our opinions of Metallica. So Grant, uh, you're always the best person to start us off. You have very good thoughts. So I push it to you. I have very good thoughts. I didn't know that. Well, I have a thought for you. Um, I actually heard Connoisseur said by uh, someone else for the first time, I think, ever yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Because every time I hear the word Connoisseur, it's you talk Patreon page. So (laughs) um, anyway, uh, I obviously I've known about S&M for a few years. I've listened through the whole record, you know, one or two times. Very familiar with the whole style. I saw S and M two. This is basically this is nothing new to me, right? Um, and you ranked them but, a ten. So what? And you ranked them a ten in the original. So it's not yeah, that's true. That's true. I can rank Metallica a ten, right? And so I'm very familiar with the band. I'm very familiar with the album in question. Um, I actually, you know, when Lucas said that we were doing um, a full live month. I immediately knew that the volume two that we we're going to do was going to be Metallica because it's like, that's just, that's just, they're so good live. And I knew it was either going to be S and M or San Diego, 1992. And technically I was correct. So uh, because those are just both very iconic performances, right? But I liked going through the lyrics because I don't do that with Metallica very often. I usually focus on the music with Metallica because that's really how I got into them was their great music. Um, that's kind of their draw for me personally. And so talking about that, that there's more um, depth, especially to their uh, 90s stuff lyrically is something that's very interesting. And I'm wondering what else I'm really missing. Um, which I didn't think I would have that thought at the end of the episode being like, ooh, there's more for me to learn about Metallica, but I guess there is, right? Even just as far as their music, there's more for me to learn, I guess. 
because um, I'm not really a lyrical deep dive person. Um, and I certainly was not when I discovered Metallica. And so that wasn't my first thought was, ooh, what are the lyrics about? Um, and so I imagine that as I listened through, you know, some of their music recently, you know, or I should say in the near future, if I listen to any of their music, I will definitely be trying to pick apart the meanings. I'll definitely be doing some Google searches to, to find out what uh, the band says about each song. Um, and the little tie-ins and stuff and how there's nuances like Hero of the Days and just about the process of grief. It's also about how, you know, there are ups and downs to it and that the music is mirroring that. I think that's something that was really nice and I would not have noticed that had we not had this episode. Um, and then also just the fact that there is more like musical clashing to be made, right? Um, there was no, I would say that there's no real musical style that was invented here, but there were two distinct, very different musical styles that were married with the S&M performance that created something new, right? It, 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 nothing was conjured up out of, out of thin air for S&M. And yet at the same time, there was something very unique that was created. And I think that's an important thing to, to recognize about music just as a whole is that if you're going to write good music, you don't necessarily have to come up with a completely new genre, right? You just have to come up with some things you like and see if you can fit them all together. Right. And then maybe you could come up with something that's completely new and nobody's ever, you know, heard it before. And you might end up making it big or you might end up saving your career. Right. It's just just a lot of a lot of interesting, interesting thoughts. And of course, what is my favorite song? Right. If I had to go off of any version of the songs that we're talking about, it's going to be undeniably Master of Puppets. Right. But if we're going to go off of S&M performance, it's got to be, ooh, it's either No Leaf Clover and Hero of the Day, and I'm really leaning No Leaf Clover, just because I think that, I think that both of those really benefit from the, the orchestra more than any others. Wow. So, that's my final thought. I, I think, so I gave... I gave Metallica a, I think I gave him a seven. I said seven or eight, I think in the beginning, in my first thoughts. I think that it would be unfair of me to give them an eight just because I, well, I guess I'll explain it like this. I I don't see myself um, coming. It's like if Metallica released another record, I would definitely 1 million percent listen through the entire thing, you know? But I, but it's more because like I respect Metallica's place, you know, and I have really good nostalgic feelings for Metallica. I think they've just solidified at a seven for me, Be, because even listening to this, I'm like, man, this is really good. Man, the songwriting's really good. The arrangement's really good. Um, they put on a good show, you know. Um, but I, I still think that I have. And we've talked about this. Like I've, I think I've, I've moved the genre wise. I've moved probably farther away from metal than I originally realized. Not far enough away though to to 
disparage Metallica for being a metal band though, you know? And so, um, I think I'm, I, cause originally I was like, Oh, Metallica, you know, I remember them. This will be like a fun episode to catch up, you know, on them. And then after listening to the set, especially now, I was just like, Oh wow. Like they, they really are like kind of as good as I remember them, uh, being, uh, so I would put them at a seven. I, oh, I'm actually between Master of Puppets and Inner Sandman for my favorite. And I was originally very sold on Master of Puppets because I thought it was just ballsy how they did it. Um, but Inner Sandman is just so unique on the arrangement. It's hard to not pick it. Uh, I think you're gonna pick the same man. I I don't know. If if I if I if I had to pick just for the energy, I it would be Master of Puppets. Even Mm. though even though I think Inner Sandman is is I think Inner Sandman is the arrangement is more inspired. I think the the gutsy call to do master of puppets as your second freaking song you know Mm -hmm. and and the even though the arrangement isn't as creative on master of puppets as it was on inner sandman it is still so perfect for the song and there's still some creative things in there even though they don't have like a a perfect like a little scored part in there so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go with master puppets and I also think it, it it goes back as as my final final thought to not discount, um, not discount different genres for not being good songwriters. And we've talked about we talked about that with Meshuga as well, where it's like you go to a a genre that feels like it's mostly musically motivated to only to find that like there's really really good lyricists in every genre. And, it goes, and I think almost the subtitle, you know, or the sub, yeah, the subtitle of the Good Music podcast almost needs to be something like every genre has good music, because <laughs> I feel like that's what we're yeah. finding more and more was just like, oh, man, punk rock, uh, it's so bad. And then, you know, we do My Chemical Romance and we're like, oh, yeah, that's really good. And it's like, oh, man. but And I'm like, oh, guy, I hate like hardcore metal or whatever the prog i don't even know gent you know and it's like oh yeah mashuka is actually really good oh but i oh i could i mean the day that we do like a johnny cash i think we will all be like dang even though i would probably anyone that knows me would probably say that i have like a deep um a deep unappreciation for country music you know unappreciation (laughs) that's a very diplomatic way of putting it but like there is good stuff i know that there's good stuff we just haven't we just haven't minded out yet we haven't talked about it we haven't talked about why it's good and so i'm just excited because i feel like every time i come here and every time we talk my uh, my horizons get uh further and further and my appreciation for different genres even though I find myself saying a lot like, you know what, I might not go back and listen to it, but I like it and I respect it, you know? So I feel like that's a good place to be. 
Wow. Well, yeah, that's absolutely, uh, you know, what we would want to hear for people that normally do not see these genres as like genres that they normally would be comfortable with. Um, for me, I mean, you know, with, with Grant, Metallica is one of those bands where it's, it's, it's hard to think of appreciating them more. But I didn't really pay attention to a lot of the lyrics before investigating through this uh, this set. And also, I think really learning the context of the events around SNM and just learning um, how important and really how miraculous this show ended up ended up being for the band really gave me a new appreciation not just for this show but just for the the spirit of metallica to understand them as a functioning unit this whole idea of they live to take risks i used to see that in them as one of their flaws and now i'm realizing that it's one of the things that makes them great is this this reckless fearlessness that they have yeah it means we're going to get some really bad stuff sometimes but i would it's like you kind of are okay with that if it means you're gonna get some really cool stuff like this if if metallica didn't have that adventure spirit we wouldn't have had an snm we wouldn't have had the black album uh we wouldn't have had stuff like the through the never film which i mean you know that's it's that was kind of a mixed success but it was still awesome to see that in theaters um you wouldn't have had stuff like the orion festival or hey let's go have a concert in antarctica just because mm-hmm. um you just you get all of these fascinating projects and i'm now realizing i think for the first time that it's just like that's part of the metallica ethos is nothing is off limits and no idea is too crazy and it makes you constantly excited to see what are they going to do next what's what's next in uh in the line of events what's the next album going to sound like honestly we have no idea what's the next vanity project going to be what's the next side project going to be what's the next tour going to be like i don't know but I can't wait to find out because you know with Metallica it's going to be something balls crazy. <laughs> yeah. And for the first time I'm really appreciating that rather than wishing that they were just like every other band that did things predictably and safe. So that's the appreciation I'm coming away with. For mm. me, for my favorite song, I got to go with Cthulhu. There's just, there's such a grandness and a such a just a ballsiness to the way that they arrange that song and put it right at the front that just it just it hits it exactly right and um something that i'm introducing now is what's called harry's pick which is my four-year-old son he listens to all the songs with me his favorite song was no leaf clover So he uh, that's that's his favorite, and I can't tell you why, 
Um, he just that's the one he asked for me to put on his iPad for him. Because <laughs> I'll ask him, I say, which we'll listen to the set of songs. I'm like, okay, Harry, which one do you want on your playlist? And he said, I want No Leaf Clover. Smart. It's good. When yep. Harry agrees with you, you know you made the right decision on your favorite song. He didn't agree with me. Well, he he agreed, he with, agreed me. with him. Oh, yeah, you <laughs> picked No Leaf Clover. That's right. So, yeah, there's our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you liked what you listened to, please hit the subscribe button. We've got new episodes every week, Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. We are going to be continuing uh, this theme of live music. We've got we've got a really fun episode next week. I know that Ethan's really pumped about it. I'm very curious to see how Grant's going to like it. I think that we're going to convert uh, – Grant to being a fan. I have no idea what I'm getting into next week. Have you listened to it? It's going to be a wild ride. No, I've I've listened to it, but I have no context. I'm going to be asking questions. So so I don't even know what questions you need to ask. Lost on it. What? So you have listened to it? You just are still developing an opinion. Uh, I've developed an opinion on what I've listened to, but I have no context for the artist. Right. Yeah, it's it's. I, I couldn't context, even tell you when they formed or like what. Context matters a lot. So, so I don't even know what questions I need to ask is the scary thing, but it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be an interesting episode, no matter which way it goes. Oh yeah, I'm excited for it. So make sure you guys don't miss that. And then we've got two links in our episode description. One of them is gonna take you to our Spotify playlist where. You, you will listen to these songs. Please listen to them. It would be really sad if you got to this point of the episode and you decided, eh, I'm not going to listen to them. And uh, the other link will take you to our Patreon page where you get uh, access to not only early content, but exclusive content as well, including the Bad Music Podcast, which is going to be really fun tonight because Metallica has, has written some stinkers. So make sure that you guys uh, sign up for that so you can hear that uh, segment. And make sure to leave us a review as well as uh, leave us some comments and some messages on Instagram and Facebook. Let us know what artists you want us to cover in the future. Once a month, we are doing an episode that is requested by you guys. So um, your suggestions will matter. It's it's not like voting where every where they say your vote doesn't matter. And in this your suggestion does matter. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this episode. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Nice. Keep on listening to good music. Mm-hmm.